we've got a kind of age-based expectation that by the time they're this age, they'll be able to do this. By the time they're this age, they'll be able to do this. And what if that system actually creates huge problems in itself? Because once you've expected that someone's going to do something and then they don't do it, then there's a problem. And then everybody rallies around and tries to solve the problem. But what about if actually you could just wait a few more years and then there wouldn't be a problem? Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello, friends, and welcome to Rethinking Education, the podcast that features long-form conversations with fascinating people from across the full spectrum of the great education debate in a slightly vague but nevertheless heartfelt attempt to bring about a more harmonious, less hair-raising state of world affairs. Before I introduce today's guest, I'd like to share with you a couple of bits of feedback I've had from listeners recently. One person sent me a lovely long email which began as follows. Dear Dr Mannion, I am a recent convert to your podcast and I am hooked. It generates emotions that I didn't think a podcast could, to be honest, from my euphoria when listening to Guy Claxton to pulling out my hair when listening to some of your other guests. I'll leave you to imagine which of my recent guests might have prompted such a response, but it is a great example of how these conversations are bringing about responses in listeners in ways that never cease to delight or amaze me. The second piece of feedback was a message I received from a listener who joined the Rethinking Education Mighty Network. He wrote, Hi James, I joined this network a while ago but didn't really take the time needed to explore properly. I was a bit caught up with other things. Anyway, more recently things have calmed down and I've been exploring more and I just wanted to say how wonderfully engaging and interesting it has been. I've been particularly enjoying the podcast and love the extended format that really enables a deeper discussion. Anyway, just wanted to drop you a message to say thanks for your excellent curation of some wonderful ideas. I was particularly pleased to receive this feedback because I haven't really done a huge amount with the Rethinking Education Mighty Network yet. I do have big plans for things that I'd like to do with this community in the months and years to come, but so far... The community is mainly just filled with whatever people bring to it, which is generally really lovely, life-affirming stuff with the occasional bit of blowing off steam. For example, a recent post with somebody sharing a TED talk by Molly Wright, a seven-year-old girl from Queensland, Australia, who was talking about the importance of play for brain development in the under fives. It's really quite incredible. I'll put a link in the show notes, but it's an example of the sort of thing that you come across if you join the Rethinking Education Mighty Network. If you would like to do so, you can join for free by following the link in the show notes or by downloading the Mighty Networks app on your phone or some other kind of device, I guess, and searching for Rethinking Education. And so to today's episode which features my recent fascinating conversation with Dr. Naomi Fisher. Naomi is a clinical psychologist with a doctorate in clinical psychology and a PhD in developmental cognitive psychology, which focused on autism. She is also the mother of two self-directed learners, having decided not to send her children to school. 
Naomi is a regular speaker on self-directed education and she's also a brilliant writer on this topic and others, as I will explain in a moment. I first came across Naomi a few months ago when an article that she had written for The Psychologist, which is the journal of the British Psychological Society, went a bit viral online. The article was called The How and Why of the Classroom, and in this article, Naomi questions some of the current, what's increasingly an orthodoxy, around traditional teaching and learning methods. I read a few more of her articles and it immediately became clear that Naomi was somebody that I would have to speak with at the first possible opportunity. So I dropped her a line via Twitter and as it turns out, we have something in common. As I've mentioned in several previous episodes, I used to work at the Self-Managed Learning College in Brighton, or SMLC as it's often referred to as. SMLC does what it says on the tin. The young people there, who are aged 9 to 16-ish, manage their own learning. They can learn what they want, when they want to. They can choose not to learn anything at all if they so choose. It's an absolutely fascinating place, and if you'd like to learn more about it, if you haven't done so already, I really recommend that you go back and listen to episodes 2 to 4 of this podcast, which feature my epic 5-hour conversation with the founder of SMLC, Professor Ian Cunningham. Anyway, it turns out that Naomi recently moved to the area in order to send her two children to SMLC. It also turns out that she recently published a book called Changing Our Minds, How Children Can Take Control of Their Own Learning. We talk about the book in depth in this conversation, and it is an absolutely brilliant read. I cannot recommend this book enough. It's in fact one of my favourite ever books, and I'm not just saying that. At first, I started highlighting key sentences and passages in this book, and I soon found that I was basically colouring in half the pages in pink highlighter. To save my pink ink, I started instead sticking in little sticky arrows that have been in my drawer for years, which was equally ridiculous. By the end, there was a forest of these things sticking out the side of the book. Naomi writes in a really interesting way, blending her vast knowledge of the psychological literature with her own life story and her experience as a parent. Naomi has led quite an unusual life and it is this that has led her to question the fact that everybody sends their kids to school, something that seems to go so unquestioned since she believes that schools often do quite a lot of harm. You could argue that they do more harm than good, at least for some young people. Naomi also recently appeared in one of the Rethinking Education Campfire Conversations a brilliant episode called Self-Directed Learning, Dare to Give Young People Autonomy. That was a quote towards the end of that episode by Alia York, who will feature in a future podcast and who's the founder of Pupil Power and a fascinating person. Anyway, I really recommend that you listen to that campfire conversation or watch it if you haven't done so already. I'll put links to the video in the show notes and you can also find the audio version in the podcast feed. Okay. Without further ado, I will hand over to my recent conversation with Dr. Naomi Fisher. I hope you enjoy the show. Naomi Fisher, welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. Hi really nice to be here, James. 
So I've been, re- I say this on almost every, every episode, but I have been really looking forward to speaking with you. And we, we, ha- we were initially going to speak, as you will recall, about a month or so ago, and I hadn't quite managed to finish reading your book at that point. Um, and so we decided to, to take a brief hiatus so that I could do. And what a book it is. It's absolutely such a, such a powerful and enjoyable read. Um, partly, I think, because it's sort of so far outside of what what is normally up for discussion you know like uh, people are often talking about you know like the, the arguments that rage between progressive and traditionalist teaching methods and and uh, inquiry versus direct instruction but we're not really talking about you know should we be instructing at all should we be should we be controlling young people should we be even be putting them through school mm-hmm. um so i've had one one guest on the podcast who i know you know um ian cunningham um is a de-schooler he doesn't think that school is a particularly good idea um and i've worked with ian as you know for i worked with him for a couple of years at the self-managed learning college so i'm familiar with some of the ideas here but um but your book is a just a wonderful expression of it um and so congratulations first of all it's quite it's quite something Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. And so, so, and, and, and it was interesting having listened to, I listened to you being interviewed on another podcast and you said that when you wrote it, you thought it was like really quite niche, that it was, you know, like it's not even just for like people, for parents of homeschoolers, but like sort of like self-directed schooling is like a, a subset of, of homeschooling, <laughs> which is a small subset of the whole. Yeah. Um, but it seems that it's had, you know, really quite a positive uh, response. Yeah, I think it has had a wider appeal than I expected. And I think I I said when I was writing it, I basically thought probably almost no one is going to read this, but I need to write it anyway. And I think that was probably why I was able to write it. I was able to overcome my kind of schooled, oh, gosh, you know, what if people what if people say she's wrong? <laughs> what if I get zero percent for it? You know, I was because I was just like, I really want to write this. I want to get it out there. Um, and I actually was spurred on to write it because I found I read another book about home education, which is a book called The Home Education Handbook. And um, it's a it's a book written by two teachers, interestingly enough. And it manages to write a whole book about home education without anything challenging at all about education or about school. It basically assumes that if you bring your child out of school, you'll try and replicate school at home as closely as you can. And that's the aim. And when I read that, I was like, oh, gosh, then really, I need to write something else here. I need to let this other, I need to at least sort of express how differently I see education and how differently I see learning. So that was where it came from. Yes, and and we've seen lots of this recently, haven't we? During lockdown, and I know that you mentioned in the introduction about you know you you put you picked out one example of a, of an article that was in the Guardian, <laughs> where a primary school deputy head teacher was saying, they're advising parents, and here's a quote: "Start every morning with a timetable and stick to your timings. <laughs> Use language such as now and next." For younger children, you can build in very clear timings, such as 10 minutes reading, followed by 10 minutes of Lego, role-playing, chase games, or exercises. And then close quote, and you ended that part by saying, in other words, she's advising you on how to control your child at home, just like at school. And this this idea of control and choice and agency is something that 
um, that features uh, strongly throughout the book. Mm. Um, and it's something that features strongly in my own thinking as well and in the work that I've done within schools in Learning to Learn where we're, we're sort of trying to crowbar open a little window at least where where some choices uh, can be made. Um, so I'm really looking forward to, to getting into this and exploring these ideas in detail. Um, as you know, from the um uh, from from previous episodes like normally we have like we have a conversation at the start of uh, at the start of the podcast and then we sort of get into the person's life history and so on and then we end up talking about rethinking education but i think in this case it might make sense to start at the beginning for you and to to, to go back to your own experience of education and i know that you traveled around a lot and you had quite a unique experience of of school um, <clears throat> because it all sort of culminates your your work as a clinical psychologist and your experience as a parent of, of self-directed children mm-hmm. um, all sort of culminates in this book. And so I think that it sort of makes sense to start at the beginning, if that's OK with you. Absolutely. Yes. So I did have quite an unconventional experience of education and I attended 11 different schools whilst growing up. Um, And that was partly because my parents moved around so for jobs. So we lived in Botswana for a while. We lived in what's now the Democratic Republic of Congo and Mozaire for a while. And each place I went to a different school. And of course, some of them I went to two schools because I switched school from primary to secondary. And not just that, but when I was back in the UK, so we did kind of go from the UK back to, to different countries and then came back again. I didn't have a conventional route to education there either. So I actually started school. I started school at the local primary school in um, Bristol, where we lived at the time. And I really hated it. I was I was already a reader when I went to school and everybody was learning to read. And I remember them all sitting on the carpet doing Jennifer Yellow Hat and Roger Red Hat. And I could already do it. And I was just like, this is really boring. It's not for me. And my parents moved me to a Steiner school, a Waldorf school, where they don't actually teach children to read until they're a bit older. They're part of their philosophy is you shouldn't learn to read until you lose your teeth. So that postponed the issue that I could already read. And most of the other children my age couldn't. Anyway, so then I, my route through education was largely was was reformed really by my parents moving to different countries where I would go to school. So I attended primary school in Botswana. Then we were home educated for a while in South Africa. Then we came back. I went to a conventional primary school in Bristol. Um, And then we went to the Congo, where I went to an American international school for a while. We came back again. And then I went to a comprehensive, a state comprehensive school in Bristol. And then we moved to Birmingham, where I went to a selective grammar school. And then I finished off by going to a boarding school for two years uh, in Wales as I finished. So I really experienced quite a lot of different ways of education and very different systems too so it wasn't that I stayed within one system all the way through there was no you know each each school had a really different philosophy as to what they thought was important so the Steiner school obviously had its very distinctive philosophy but just things like the American school had a really different approach to the British schools I then atten- I attended later. There was a lot of testing at our American school. I would be, in fact, there was a rule that we couldn't be tested more than, we couldn't have more than one quiz and two tests in a single day. And that was because we literally were being tested a lot. And actually, I quite liked that. I was quite good at tests. I didn't mind. And 
it kind of took all of the fear out of a test. You know, if you're doing them every week, then it's not that bad if you do badly. Yeah, yeah. But there were just things that struck me even then about how we were controlled differently in different schools. So when we got, so when I came back to the UK, I had to wear school uniform, which I hadn't had to do before because the international school didn't have a uniform. And suddenly there were all these rules around uniform and conformity. And in fact, at my girls' grammar school, for the first two years of it, you were actually all meant to wear exactly the same skirt. There was not even a choice about which kind of navy blue skirt you were allowed to wear. It was the same navy blue skirt. And after that, the freedom was that you were allowed to choose your own navy blue skirt as long as it wasn't too long or too short. And the thing that really interested me was that people who'd been at these schools all along just seemed to accept these rules as the way they were. It wasn't that they really conformed with them particularly. There was obviously always a bit of how can I push the rules here but it was just the way things were. No one was saying, hang on, this is a really stupid rule. You know, we, why do we even all have to wear skirts? <laughs> why are we all wearing these navy blue skirts? Who decided that that was what girls should wear when they go to school? Anyway, and of course, so that was another element of it, that this grammar school was actually single sex school as well. So I had the experience of um, mixed schools, but then single sex schools as well. Anyway, so that was all my education experience. And the thing that really, looking back, I feel I learned from all of that was that a lot of what school says is really important isn't actually crucially important. So I never followed a curriculum all the way through. You know, all this thing about it's got to be linear, you've got to do the year two so you could do year three. Well, I was switching schools and they weren't doing the same things in the year below. So I would switch schools and I would have missed all of the earlier stuff. In some subjects, I would come in and I wouldn't have studied that subject at all because the previous school didn't do it. Like my American school had this system where you didn't study all the sciences together. You studied each science for a year. So one year you did biology. The next year you did chemistry. The next year you did physics. So that meant I came back to the UK having not done any physics because I'd only done the biology and the chemistry years. <laughs> and then... But actually, it didn't really seem to matter. Now we had to do biology, chemistry and physics. But actually, you read a book or so and you caught up. And so my so I had a, a kind of scepticism about the things that schools say are necessary, I think, going into my higher education. Anyway, so then I went off to university and I ended up doing clinical psychology as a as my oh well, I did a PhD. I did a first degree, but my final higher education degree was in clinical psychology. And quite soon after I finished my clinical psychology degree, I had my own children. I had two children of my own who are now nearly 13 and just 10. And as a clinical psychologist, I, I, I mean, I really enjoy clinical psychology and I always have done. And I've worked with adults and children. And one of the things which concerned me slightly right from early on was how I felt that as clinical psychologists, we kind of get pulled in to facilitating the education system. So some of that we'll have referrals, for example, for school refusal. And actually another part of my educational pathway, which I didn't talk about, was that I refused to go to school. When we came back from the when we came back from Zaire when I was about 13 or 14, went to a state comprehensive school. I hated it, couldn't see the point of it, felt I was learning nothing at all. And I didn't get along with the other kids at all. They thought I was really weird. Um, and I write about it in my book. They, my, my said on one of my early days that my dad worked for Oxfam because he worked for Oxfam in um, in Zaire, and they fell about laughing because for them Oxfam was secondhand clothes. Yeah. And 
and from then on, whenever I walk past anybody, I'd be, oh, you're closed from Oxfam. Or they'd be a sort of must. They, they wave their hands in front of their nose because it was like the musty secondhand smell. Yeah. Um, and of course, I'd just been somewhere where working for Oxfam was pretty prestigious, really. <laughs> you know, yes. so there was just this massive disconnect between me and them. And I felt completely alienated. And they'd been they were this massive comprehensive school, but they had actually been in the same class since they were five because the schools fed straight into the secondary school. So they knew each other back to front. You know, all their roles within the class were really well established. And here was I. They just didn't like me and I didn't like them. So I refused <laughs> to go to school. Um, and I, at the time, the way that was conceptualised was as me having chronic fatigue or me having glandular fever. So because I, I felt really lethargic. It wasn't that I woke up one day and said, I'm not going to school. It was that I felt iller and iller. And I felt really tired. I couldn't do anything. I was, my parents sent, you know, I went and had blood tests and I went to see a homeopath and all kinds of things to help me feel better. But ultimately, what I think looking back was I didn't want to go to school. And I didn't feel school was, was, a, was a useful place for me to be. So I was being sent kids a bit like me, I felt, who were saying, I don't, I don't want to go to school. And as a clinical psychologist, I was being taught to conceptualise that as anxiety, school-based anxiety. So one girl in particular I remember working with um, wasn't going to school and she had been really badly bullied at school and she'd started refusing to go to school. And what I was encouraged to do with her was to make what we call a graded hierarchy. So in cognitive behaviour therapy, one of the things you do if someone's very anxious about something is you build a hierarchy to get them gradually exposed to doing the thing that they're anxious about. But the rationale behind it is that this is irrational anxiety. Because, you know, if someone's really anxious about having their hand cut off or something, you're not going to do a, a graded exposure. You know, if they're actually anxious about something real, or if they're actually, that's not a great example, a better example is, Say a child is living with parents who are warring each other, who are, you know, who are really, there's violence going on in the home, for example, and that child's anxious about violence in the home. You wouldn't do a graded exposure program for that child to that violence because the child's got rational anxiety. You would try and help the parents sort things out so the child wasn't in that environment anymore. But if a child's really anxious about spiders, for example, then it makes sense to do a graded hierarchy because actually spiders aren't harmful mm. and it's an irrational fear. So there's a difference. And school is generally put into the irrational anxiety box Yes, where we're thinking about cognitive behaviour therapy at least. So I would be doing these graded exposure um, programmes for these kids and this girl in particular. It would be, you know, first we'll take the bus to school, we'll just go into the foyer and that will be that for today and then the next time we might go and meet another person in the foyer and it would be this gradual building up and she and her mum were like but she doesn't want to go to school <laughs> you know and also her mum was like and they bully her at school and she you know and it's like hmm yeah. so where am I how am I meant to sort of kind of change this girl so that she fits into school but actually what she's saying is that school's a really alienating environment for her and I know what that feels like because school was a really alienating environment for me. Yes. And of course, most clinical psychologists don't have that perspective because in order to become a clinical psychologist, you have to succeed at school. You know, it's extraordinarily competitive to get into the doctorate in clinical psychology. 
you have to have got A's, you have to have got a good degree, you just have to, there's no other way in really. So, and I think we've probably got that problem across a wide range of, of professions that in order to get into those professions, you have to do quite well at school. And therefore it's really hard for you to imagine what it's like to really not do well, really be unhappy. And I mean, I was, I suppose, a strange case because I managed to carry on and do academically well, despite being really unhappy and despite not going for most of two years, really. I didn't go to school and did it myself at home. Mm. Um, anyway, so I'm getting digressing here. But so that was all in the mix before I really started and had my own kids. Then when I had my own kids, um, it was clear quite early on that my little boy, who's now nearly 13, was really active little boy, really very had a, had a very strong sense of himself and of what he wanted to the point where basically it was impossible for me to suggest anything because I would say, let's do this. And he'd say, no, mommy, I have a better idea. Let's do this. And that would be what we would do. Um, he was, you couldn't really persuade him to do things. And we just went with that. We were doing loads of stuff. We were, you know, living our life. And then as school approached, I was starting to think, how is this going to work at school? Because, you know, at school you do have to do what you're told and you do have to fit in with the group. And he didn't like fitting in with groups. In fact, he didn't like big groups of people and he still doesn't. He prefers to be in a smaller group of people. He needs a space to get away from everybody else. And in fact, the day we had a place at our local primary school, which was a really highly sought over after primary school in our own road in the street we lived in. I went down there for the the whatever you call it, the you know, um, induction day with him. And he hid under the table. He spent his time hiding under the table with his hands over his ears. It was 75 kids. They had free flow nursery reception. And I thought, hmm, <laughs> I'm not sure how this is going to play out. And then I went to the parents meeting about how, you know, going into school and they gave us a list of key words which they wanted us to teach the children over the summer. And these key words were words like the, if, but, kind of, you know, words that I guess you're not going to learn with phonics that are useful. And my son was just three at the time because he's a summer birthday. So he's going to be four in July. And I looked at this list of words and I was like, how am I going to do, why would I want to spend my summer trying to teach these words to my very strong-willed three-year-old when he will see absolutely no point because it takes the learning completely out of context here. We've managed to divorce any idea of why one might want to read. I mean, I'm, I'm asking him to read words that he probably doesn't even really know exists. You know, the is not a word that small children are terribly aware of it's a word you become aware of when you start to read and yet i'm gonna i mean that's i felt like we're being set up to fail we're going to be failing right from day one right basically and i suppose as a clinical psychologist i had seen what happens to children who go in and aren't meeting expectations from really early on and i just thought this could be a route that i really don't want to go down and maybe we just shouldn't do it why don't we just skip it for a bit so we kept him out of school and originally the idea was we would keep him out of school until he was about seven. Um, and then as he was out of school, basically what I discovered was that the longer he was out of school, the more the gap between him and his school peers grew, as opposed to what I had expected, which was that it would shrink. So I had expected that he would developmentally kind of catch up a bit 
and that by the time he was seven or eight, I would be able to imagine him going in and doing what he was told and sitting at a desk. But also, of course, the thing is that school moves people on. So actually, maybe when he was seven or eight, he might have been ready to go somewhere where, like a reception class, where you get quite a lot of choices and there's quite a lot of opportunities to play. But he wasn't ready to go into a, a year two or year three class where the expectations are completely different. But also, his learning took a really different pathway. And that fascinated me to see, because as a, as a psychologist, I'd spent a lot of time studying developmental psychology. I've got a PhD in developmental psychology. And I suddenly started thinking, but all the children I studied went to school. When we talk about developmental psychology, we're really talking about how children develop in the context of them spending at least 30 hours a week in a schooling environment. And what if actually we don't really know how children develop outside that schooling environment? What if it's really very much more diverse than we might ever imagine? Because a lot of what I was learning was things like, you know, between the age of three and five, children develop the ability to mentalize. They've developed the ability to take account of other people's thoughts and feelings, different perspectives. It was quite age-based. At this age, we do this. At this age, we do this. And yet I was seeing in my son that he was doing things at wildly different ages to the other children around him. And I felt that part of that was just he wasn't being pressured. He wasn't in that environment, which was kind of pushing everybody in the same direction. And I thought, wow, perhaps some of the problems that we see with children at school and then they end up coming to someone like me, is because we're, we, we've got an expectation of child development, which actually isn't for everybody. You know, it's a, it, it might be typical. I don't even know if it is really typical, but we've got a kind of age-based expectation that by the time they're this age, they'll be able to do this. By the time they're this age, they'll be able to do this. Yeah. And what if that system actually creates huge problems in itself? Because... Once you've expected that someone's going to do something and then they don't do it, then there's a problem. And then everybody rallies around and tries to solve the problem. But what about if you actually you could just wait a few more years and then there wouldn't be a problem? Yes. So, so that was where that came in with my kids. And that brought in, I suppose, also as a clinical psychologist, I'm always interested in well-being and how people feel about themselves. And I know from my clinical work that... The way that when somebody feels powerless and when they feel like they have no control over their environment, they don't feel good, basically. They don't feel happy. They don't feel able to be themselves. They feel controlled. And yet, the more I saw school from the outside, because I think one of the advantages of not sending your children to school is you start to see school from the outside as opposed to from the inside, which is what you see it as a child and then as a parent, the more controlling it seemed. Because just these, just all these things, like you've got to get there at a certain time, you've got to wear certain clothes, you've got to cut your hair a certain way, you've got to have certain things in your lunchbox. You aren't even, you know, if you want to take something, you're not, so lots of schools have quite specific rules about what children are meant to eat. Then they come home and there's homework and there are often expectations about what time the children get to bed and all kinds of things. It's like your whole life is controlled by school. And we're so in it usually that we don't even notice that. But as we get out of it, we start to. I started to ask myself, why? Why do we do this in the name of education? Is it really crucial to control people's lives in order to educate them? Yes. And also, if we're doing that, can we actually expect them to be happy? Because is it part? You know, how can you if you if you control some aspects of everybody's life? Isn't it actually normal? 
and completely natural to not be happy with that and to push against it. Yes, yes, thank you. And there's a bit in the chapter in your book about well-being, there's a bit where you were talking about Greta Thunberg and her mother and an article that she wrote. Oh, yeah. Um, and I think it's worth just, just uh, reading this short section out because it, it illustrates some, a really fascinating point that made me think, wow. Um, so... Um, Greta's mother describes in this article how since the age of 11 Greta had been expressing distress she was crying every day all day she stopped eating she was having panic attacks she was diagnosed with various things with autism and OCD and was almost hospitalized for eating problems she was put on drugs and yet her mother writes what happened to Greta in particular can't be explained simply by a psychiatric label in the end she simply couldn't reconcile the contradictions of modern life things simply didn't add up. We who live in an age of historic abundance, um, who have access to huge shared resources, can't afford to help vulnerable people in flight from war and terror. People like you and me, but who have lost everything. She saw what the rest of us did not want to see, close quote. And then you ask this question, when Greta started to act, starting a school strike which spread around the world, she started to be able to eat and live again. Her mother sums up a dilemma of our time. Are very distressed people sick or disordered? Or do they see the world more clearly than the rest of us? Yeah, That's I think it's such a great question. quote. It's yeah. such a great quote. And I think we see it all around us because Greta, you know, she sounds like exactly the kind of child I might uh, who might be referred to see a clinical psychologist. Exactly. You know, she's in fact, she already clearly has because yeah. she wouldn't have picked up these diagnoses if she hadn't. So, you know, child very upset all the time. We label it as a disorder. We label it as a problem. And we then send the child off to be diagnosed and to be treated. And and actually, we by doing that, we locate the problem so firmly in the child that the, the environment must be OK, but the child is the problem. And it, I mean, when we label, we give labels of autism, OCD, ADHD, whatever else, we're always putting the problem in the child. So, you know, there are treatment protocols. There aren't for autism, but there are for OCD which could have been about desensitizing her and helping her to reduce her symptoms and all this kind of thing. But it wouldn't have addressed the problem that she was seeing. And I think it's so interesting that she got a diagnosis of autism and she's her mother's talking about this clarity because it's something I see in so many of the children who are diagnosed with autism or ADHD, that they have a clarity about the system, about how school affects them that other children don't have. So they... I mean, I used to think, I think this about my son, that he had a real clarity about control, and he still does. He's really good at picking up when somebody is trying to control him. Even if they do it really nicely and gently, he'll be like, nope, <laughs> you know, you're trying to control me. Don't pressure me. I'm like, okay, I'll stop pressuring. But he picks it up in all sorts of places. I think I might mention it in my book. When he was young, if I was if it was raining and it stopped raining, I would look out the window and say, oh, it's it stopped raining. And he would be like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I would be like, yes, OK, you're right. There was a hidden message there, which was now we can go out. <laughs> and he wasn't having any of it. You know, he was like he's really he really encourages he brings all of that out. And I think that was so valuable for me to bring out the hidden control in so much of what I was doing as a parent, because that's what we do as parents. We, yeah. And that's what school does, too. A lot of the control is hidden. It's not that we're forcing, you know, we're not forcing those kids through the door every morning with whips and pressure. We're we're creating an environment in which only certain choices are possible. So children at school 
don't have the choices to go and do what they would like to do. If they do, that's non-compliance. They, there's a great book I also talk about called Troublemakers by Carla Shalaby. And she talks about six-year-olds in school and she traces them over two years, really close observations of six-year-olds in school. And she talks about learning school culture and children who don't learn school culture. Yeah. And all the kids she talks about, I don't know if you've read that book, but they're all diagnosed with ADHD. They're all medicated by the end of the book. And yet, as you watch her, as you read the book, you see school culture through their eyes and you see how totally illogical it seems. There's one great little um, little sort of anecdote. She talks about this little boy called Lucas and she says all the children are sitting on the carpet reading or the teacher's reading a book to them. They're all sitting there quietly and Lucas isn't interested in the book she's reading. So he gets up, he walks over all the other children's legs, goes and gets himself another book, then comes back, walks over all their legs again, sits down with the book. And, and Carla Shalaby, who's the narrator, says, you know, I was aghast. The teacher was aghast. The other children were aghast. How could he not have known that this was not acceptable in school culture? But, you know, from Lucas's perspective, what's he done? He wasn't interested in the book they were reading, so he went to get himself a book. I mean, you know, there are many worse things he could have been doing <laughs> with his time. But in the context of school culture, that's not OK. You're yeah. meant to be sitting and listening to what the teacher says. And I think there are children who retain that clarity of vision, which are, and they're amazing. And unfortunately, what's happening to them is they're being sent for diagnosis and, and, and treatment as if they're the problem. Yeah. And so, so, like, so you can see how these twin sorts of things. So, so you are experiencing as a clinical psychologist, I'm imagining lots of examples of, of how young people are being medicated for not fitting the mold mm. um and you're having this sort of parallel experience with your own son so should we, should we go back to that and then we'll yeah. come on to the med the way that we medicalize yep. childhood and we medicalize poverty as well because you know it's not clear um yeah anyway we'll, we'll, we'll come on to all of that um so so we were at the point where you like you you, you thought that your son's that the gap would close by the time he was yep. sort of age seven or eight but it was widening yeah and so you sort of started to think okay maybe him not going to school is is forever now is that is that correct yeah, I mean, we looked around a lot to see whether there might be other places because one of the things about me as a home educator was that I, I I love clinical psychology and I always wanted to work. So I was never someone who wanted to give up my work in order to home educate. Mm. Um, and it was very difficult to try and manage it with me and my husband both doing part time. We tried that for a while. Um, but it was extraordinarily difficult for both of us, really, to organise work that could be done just around the children. So for a while, and I've never I've never actually stopped working apart from when I was on maternity leave. So for a while, I was home educating the children. I was with the children all day. And I've got a daughter as well, who's three years younger. So by the time my son was four or five and wasn't going to school, she was one or two. Um, I'll be with them all day. Then my husband would come back from work. I would hand over the children and then I would go out and to a little um, clinic just down the road, and I would see clients like seven and eight o'clock. It was exhausting. It was the most tiring thing I've ever done. I, when I think back to it, I had to stop. I used to stop at the local shop on the way and get well, like a bottle of Lucasade, and I would just be literally chucking it back because it was the only way I could manage to focus. Because clinical psychology is really focused. You know, you you're one on one with somebody. You have to be really there. You can't zone out at all for a moment. Anyway, so I managed to keep that going. But there was always this tension that I did want to be working and we did need, I wanted to be working. I wanted to have a career outside of home education. 
Um, so I've lost my track slightly. Where was I? So basically, so we did look around for other schools, but as we looked, it became clear to me that the only place that would really suit them, my son in particular, but also my daughter, was somewhere where they were able to choose what they did, that that was the fundamental. And I think that's, it all comes down to that for me. It really isn't about pedagogy or what, you know, if they wanted to go somewhere where they wanted to sit in a classroom and receive direct instruction, I would be fine with that. Because if they chose to do that, that's that's the important bit for me. The important bit is that they can choose and also that they can choose to stop when they want to. So we actually ended up moving to France for two years where they went to a self-directed school in Paris. And that was a really, I'm going to say, it was probably the most pure form of self-direction that exists. It was a Sudbury model school. Which yeah, means, so these are these are yeah. quite common. They, they're quite widely um, in existence throughout France in a they, way that they're they, not really in the UK. They were. They were. Unfortunately, they're now under a lot of pressure. Actually, there's the gov. The French government has noticed them uh, right. for a while. There was okay. a kind of halcyon period where they didn't, um, and so there were quite a lot of them in the UK. It's always been much more difficult to set up a self-directed school. It's always been easier to home educate in the UK, whereas in France, it's actually quite hard to home educate. You have to be inspected. Um, but it was it was for a short period easier to set up a school. So we were lucky because we managed to get in at that period. And so the, so the school they went to there, the teachers, there's no pro, there's no schedule. There are no programs. There's the the ethos is that it, things need to come from the children. So the adults are there, they're responsive, they will join you with things, but they won't say, this is what I'm offering, or they won't say, would you like to do some maths? Or the children need to say that. Um, so it's like the ultimate in low pressure environment in a sense, but you've got your peer group. And I think the peer group is a really important part of it because a lot of the ideas that come up and a lot of what my children did when they were there were things suggested by other children. And there's a real synergy that happens because it's a mixed age community. So the children were aged six from six to 19, I think. And they're all in one group. All So the school, when you go into the school, um, it's basically set up with different rooms for different things. So like on the left, there was a computer room. In the main room, there was a sitting room and kitchen. Then there was a quiet room at the back with books. Then downstairs, there was a music room. There was an art room. There was a soft play room with a massive with massive mattresses in it. And there was a cinema room. And kids could move freely between all of these places at all times and do whatever activities they wanted to do. And if and the whole system was run by democratic meeting. And if the children wanted to change the use of one of the rooms, that could happen and did happen. So if people were saying, you know, we need another we need a room to we need a better playroom, for example, then they could move everything around. And they did. So they were there for two years. And then um, then there was a global pandemic. And so the school closed down. Well, it didn't close down, but it closed for the pan during the first lockdown. Um, and our life in France basically relied on us being able to travel easily between the UK and France. But on the Eurostar, we were in Paris, and we yeah we needed my husband in particular was working in London, so he needed to be able to get easily between the two. Suddenly, with the pandemic, that was really that was difficult, and it was looking like it was going to be difficult for a very long time. In fact, at the time, we probably didn't anticipate quite as long, but obviously it's still really difficult. So in May last year, May 2020, we packed up, came back, um, and 
we then moved to Hove, where they're at the self-managed learning college, which is Ian Cunningham's self-managed self-managed learning setting. So it's funny that you say that's quite different because for us that feels more like school than other things they've done before. Because at the self-managed learning college, you have learning advisors who are who who say what subjects they offer. There are groups that are offered. They can arrange one-to-ones to do things if they want to. Um, and they, ha- you know, there's a structure to it which the school in Paris didn't have. Yeah, yeah, okay. I mean, that's that that is interesting because like <laughs> I previously imagined that the SMLC was as sort of as as far out as it as it goes. I mean, they because there isn't a curriculum. The children can they well it does what it says on the tin. They self manage, um, and yet many of them do five GCSEs or more. Um, and so the, at, you know, in years 10 and 11, so many of them, like the, the school sort of framework for like, you need to do these qualifications in order to move on to the next thing. And partly that's the reality, right? But partly it's also, you know, it's also the case that you can go to college and you can get educated later in life. You don't have to do that. But, um, but many of them do follow that path. Um, so that's that's fascinating to hear that that um, that yeah some uh, so a place like Sudbury Valley. Sudbury Valley is the American school that's the kind of the first. It's been open since 1968. So these schools in France, the democratic self-directed schools, are built on that model. Where yes, it's much. It's there's a there's an ethos that any offering by an adult could be perceived as coer- as coercive by the child, and therefore as to be avoided and it's very controversial people talk about it. I write about it a bit in the book that everybody has their own view on how this how education could be done non-coercively and um SMLC is a much more structured it's and Ian talks about that that it's freedom within the structure whereas I would say that Sudbury Valley schools are far less structured there is a structure and there's a structure for rule enforcement in particular they've got a really strong structure for that um but it's generally it's less structured it's possible at at, um the Sudbury Valley type schools to get there in the morning and to spend your entire day playing on a tree for example and and for to do that for years and that would not be perceived as a problem by anybody yeah yeah I mean it's there are so many questions that (laughs) that I have (laughs) Um, and and I, I sort of I want to I want to save them until we get into the book properly. But I'd re- mm-hmm. I'd, so so at what point did the book start? Did it start start to come to 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 your awareness? It's quite recent. It. Yeah, yeah. Mm, yes. Yeah, so I had been thinking about it for a while because when we were when I was home educating in the UK, so we left the UK in 2018. I was thinking all the time about this. I felt really strongly that there was a there was a kind of synergy between self-directed education and psychology, but not really necessarily educational psychology, but more the psychology of how we know children learn and how we know children develop. And I felt like somehow, perhaps because there aren't many clinical psychologists thinking about education (laughs) or many that Perhaps that wasn't really being written about. That no one, but yet it it seemed to make so much sense to me. The more I saw my children learning in a self-directed way, the more it made sense that this was something that they were kind of psychologically primed to do. That they were it worked with their psychology as opposed to what I saw at school, which it felt to me would often be working against their psychology. So just the basic premise that 
young children really like playing and they really like playing most of the time. And in fact, it's really hard to stop them from playing. And if you don't even have to provide them with anything to play, you know, if they've just got a stick, then they'll play with the stick. If they've just got, if they're in a dull environment, they'll find whatever there is and they'll start playing with it. And yet at school quite early, we try and pull them away from that. And we try and pull them towards sitting still and learning, as we say in quotes. And I just felt like, why do we need to spend children's childhoods pulling them away from what they really want to do? Because actually play, it's something that is actually quite age specific. You know, I can't play in the same way anymore as a five-year-old or six-year-old can. If I'm in a boring environment, I'm more likely to get out my phone or I'll look for a book. I won't play. And I, I felt like, isn't there maybe something really developmentally important about this stage when that's all they want to do? And what about if we let that happen rather than try and pull against it? So if we went with their psychology rather than trying to trying to squash them really into a mould that that perhaps just doesn't fit many of them. And I suppose I had a particularly unique perspective because of being a clinical psychologist where I saw the intense distress that some children experienced. Because I think there's something that goes on, and I suppose that's one of the reasons I was writing my book. There's something that goes on where parents become very ashamed if their children aren't managing at school. So parents often try to hide just how distressed their children are or just how extreme their children's behaviour is because they fear rejection by other parents and by other children. So you can get this kind of conspiracy of silence where everybody's trying to pretend that it's all right when actually and then they come to see me and I hear about you know the child who slams the door behind them after school and just screams or the child who every night is going I don't want to go I don't want to go I don't want to go and most parents other parents just don't hear about that you just assume that it's okay and understandably you know we don't want to talk about how difficult things are to everybody but I think it did give me a, a kind of different perspective um, and also, I worked in a clinic. I worked as a locum for a while in a clinic which was specifically diagnosing children with ADHD and autism. Um, and that was something where I became increasingly uncomfortable with my role again as a clinical psychologist because we were sent these children where they were all being referred by their school. They often waited for two years to come and see us and they would be desperate for a diagnosis. So the families would come in through the door and we we offered them a one day process where we, you know, somebody saw the child, somebody, I would talk to the parents, we'd all meet together, we'd kind of bring together all the different reports, the teachers would write and everything. And then we'd say, yes, you can have a diagnosis of ADHD or autism. No, you can't. And if we said no, they were often devastated because they saw that yes as their passport to a better life, really, a, a life of somebody making somebody saying yes this child needs extra help yes this child needs something different and I felt there was something so wrong with the way we were being used as the as the gateway to extra support or to changing something because some of these children would then have gone off to a, a totally different school they might have get, got a place at a specialist secondary school or got a place at a school that has a specialist unit because we had given them a diagnosis and yet the other thing I was becoming quite skeptical about was just how how valid all these diagnoses that we were giving children were because I was seeing I had this experience I don't actually write about it in this book but I wrote about it in a different book that I'm writing I had an experience of seeing a little girl who um, 
she was from an East European country and she came with her whole family and we did the whole assessment process with her. And at the end of the day, I said to her family, and she's, so, you know, she's autistic, we're going to give you a diagnosis of autism. And then I gave them my little talk about how this didn't mean that she wasn't going to achieve her potential and how this would mean she'd get her help and all this kind of thing. And the, the father looked at me and he said, but what do you mean? The doctor last time told us she wasn't autistic. And I was like, oh, what's going on here? And they'd come three weeks earlier. It was an administrative error. They'd come, they'd been offered an appointment three weeks earlier with a different professional. And they'd gone through exactly the same process and they'd been told she wasn't autistic. And there was a whole report and everything and it just hadn't been flagged up because, you know, just the way it was. And here was I saying, but she is. And I was like, we're changing people's lives on the basis of these diagnoses. We absolutely are. You know, if she goes out of here being told she's autistic and she's going out there being told she's not autistic, her life will probably go in two different directions. Mm. And yet within the same team, in the same hospital, we could make such different diagnoses. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was a really, oh, gosh, what are we doing here moment for me. Um Anyway, yeah, that's so. incredible. And so you talk in the book about how like because because there is no clinical test, there's no blood test for autism or for it's ADHD. Behavior. It's, it's all behavior. It's behavioral checklist. So there's a, yeah. a diagnostic statistical manual, isn't there? Yeah. And it's like if if you hit sort of you know seventy percent of these criteria, then then it's a yes. Yes. Um, that is. But but that process is is incredibly subjective in the way that you interpret those those. Um, well, A, in the way that yeah. you interpret those statements and B, in the way that you observe the child and what the child may or may not be doing on any particular day. Um, so you can see how, yeah, that we're making these huge decisions um, and putting labels on, on young people. And then this is the bit where the book, like, it's probably the, the, the most serious aspect of it because at, at times mm -hmm. it's, it's such an enjoyable read and, and it's often, it seems like the, that you're writing it almost with a sort of slightly bemused perplexed like just like why is everybody so sold on this idea of school when it's so clearly causing so much harm to so many people it's almost like an eyebrow raised sort of sort of tone in places and it's quite, you're quite playful but obviously this is not a laughing matter you know this is mm. really serious and it's probably never more so than when we're talking about medicalizing childhood aspects of childhood yeah. the way in which for example summer born children are much more likely to get an SEN diagnosis than children yeah. who are born, you know, in the autumn. In autumn, yeah. Um, so that's, you know, a bit of a red flag, isn't it? Um, You'd have thought so. And I think also having my own children made me aware of how different children can be in different environments, which I wasn't really something I was aware of before, because I would see the children I would see as a clinician, I would only see them in that context. I had reports on them from their school. Sometimes I would see them at school. Parents would tell me about home, but they'd always tell me about the bad times. You know, that's what, unfortunately, as a clinician, that's what you're asking about. You're asking about things they can't do, things that make, yeah, that, that's the whole focus. Yeah. And then with my own children, I would see that in some situations, there were things they absolutely couldn't do. And their behavior was really extreme and, you know, really challenging. And then on another day in a different environment or even in the same environment, but just at a time when they're, you know, well fed and well rested, behavior entirely different. And I thought, with, there's a problem with when we're diagnosing behavior as meaning a child can't do something, 
when maybe it's just that they can't do something in that time, in that place. But actually, they can do it in other situations. I mean, I think social skills are a really important, a really crucial thing, actually, that, um, you know, obviously, one of the things I had trouble with when I, well, so one of the things, again, that alerted me to this was that when I was at my international school in Zaire, I was socially really integrated, I had good friends, I was really happy there. I was sort of one of the crowd, basically. I came back to the comprehensive school in Bristol. And I very quickly became the person that nobody wanted to talk to. The person who was kind of, you know, never had a partner in PE, was always kind of, oh, I don't want to sit with her. The, the person who was always left out. And I'd seen through my school career that pretty well every class had somebody like that. There was always somebody who yeah. was the not liked person. And in fact, this class I was in already had one of those, but he was a boy. So maybe there was a space for a girl. Um, and I was like, always before I've kind of assumed that must be something about that person you know that because that's how the class behaves that this person is less whatever it is less clever less nice whatever it is they're, they're often labeled as the not so you know it's about them the reason we don't like this person is because of something about them mm. and I was like but hang on when I was at my class in Zaire people just thought I was a normal person now suddenly I'm a person that nobody wants to talk to what's like, but I'm the same person. So, and now, you know, now I'm a person with problems basically, because now I refuse to go to school. <laughs> so now I've become a person who's kind of being pathologized for not going to school. And yet in my old school, none of that was there. And I did, I, at the time I did definitely think if I could just go back to my old school, I would be fine again. And I was probably right. I probably would have been fine. Obviously, I couldn't go back to my old school because my old school was like thousands of miles away. Um, but it really just made me think how much of it, how much are we putting children in environments they find really stressful or really unpleasant, and then we're diagnosing their behavior on the, on the, by what they do. We're then giving them a diagnosis, basically saying, you know, just thinking about like the playing we were talking about, child can't stop playing. We saw a lot in the clinic. We had a lot of referrals for six-year-old boys that would be going into year one or year two, and they couldn't sit still. They weren't sitting at their desk. They weren't doing their whatever they were meant to be doing. And then because they couldn't sit still, they were often doing things like shoving other children, kicking other children, maybe getting into fights with other children. And it just seemed really clear to me that... If we just stop the expectation that these six-year-old boys would sit still, we probably wouldn't have a problem. If we just let them run around when they wanted to run around, and not, and I'm not talking about the way schools do it, which is often things like a movement break, or you know, schools do tweak. I'm not saying they don't tweak. They do try and do these things. But I'm talking about if the child actually feels restless, can they just get up and run around outside without it being a problem? In fact, could all the children just get up and run around outside without it being a problem? Because that's what happens in, say, a Sudbury model school. There is no expectation that you'll be sitting at a desk. And therefore, they don't have that kind of problem with children. So, so that was just something that I was all thinking about all the time when I was home educating my kids. Then we moved to France and suddenly I had time. It was because they were at school. So for a long time, I had almost no time at all. In fact, when I think about the process, the thinking process in my book, I think about it. I think about myself in a swimming pool because the only time I had time to myself in the week was when the children were doing a sports class at the leisure centre and I would go swimming. And as I was swimming up and down, I was 
thinking about all the ideas and about how I could write about them. <laughs> but then we got to France and suddenly they were at this school and I had the space to start thinking. And so I just wrote and wrote and wrote and started to sort of, to sort of sort it all out in my mind. And I think it had been percolating for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, yeah. It's, it, I mean, and a heady brew it was that, that came out of that of that percolator. <laughs> Hello, listeners. I think I've mentioned this previously, but it turns out that making a podcast is incredibly time-consuming. Who knew? For an episode like this one with Naomi Fisher. It requires me to read a book and several articles, to speak to the guest prior to recording to plan out the conversation, then to record what's often a three-hour podcast, and then to edit it, which takes at least that long again, to publish and promote it, all of which adds up to around 20 to 30 hours per episode, would you believe, which is obviously a really long time. Anyway... If you've been enjoying these podcasts and you would like to buy me a cup of delicious decaffeinated coffee in return, there's a link where you can do this in the show notes. Just to be clear, you won't get access to any extras if you do this. Instead, you'll essentially be reimbursing me for some of the time it takes to put these things together, and in so doing, you'll be helping keep the podcast sustainable for the long term. And if you're not in a position where you can make a donation, there are other ways in which you can contribute to keeping the show on the road, for example, by sharing the podcast with a friend or by giving us a lovely glowing five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Now back to my fascinating conversation with Dr. Naomi Fisher. There's so many aspects of this that we could look at. Um, there are a few. There are a few sort of key ideas that 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 um, emerge in the book um, that, I'd, that I'd quite like to get into. But I think that maybe at first in in the last conversation that I had with Amelia Peterson, um, I was talking about how there's a little sort of mini trad who lives in my in my head, who sort of stamps their feet and when, when yeah. I, you know when, when I was yeah. when I was writing my book. That trad was very, very ever present, arguably too much so. Um, but um, I, I wonder, like, so, so I'm just trying to channel, <laughs> I'm trying to channel this in a trad now. Yeah. And and th- an initial response before we get into any of the arguments and the, the experiences and, and so on and the case studies that you write about in the book, just on a sort of on, a, on an intuitive level, you might think, but children need to be molded they they are they are sort of wild and unfettered and if we if we don't sort of um trim off the excesses and the rough the rough edges that that we're not preparing them for life of work where you for example have to earn money you have to be well presented you have to be on time you have to you know not ask difficult questions you have to learn how to play the game of life as it were mm-hmm. and and that school what was that <laughs> what was that quote i think it was from Irving Welsh who said if you love if you like school you'll love work because we've got plenty more where that came from. Yeah. So, so the, the, there's this sort of an intuitive like um, response that I think that people have when you talk about these ideas about not letting your your kid go to school, and it's like <gasps> there's yeah. almost like a, a drawing of breath. It's like so far beyond the pale. Yeah. But 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 not you know not in not in an irrational way. People have a sort of a, a rationale. So what would you say to somebody who who would who who would have that initial response of like? But we can't just let them roam free. Like this is this is not setting them up for success. 
I think it's entirely natural to have that response because almost all of us went to school. And I think one of the things that we learn at school is that school is necessary. And we learn that right from early on. If you weren't at school, you would never learn. I mean, there are books for small children about how they'll go to school and they'll learn great things. And we read them to two and three year olds before they even start school. And then once you're at school, there's this message all the time that doing well at school is really important and that if I didn't make you do these things, then you'll regret it later. And, you know, you might not realise why I'm making you do maths now, but you will in the future. There's a strong push from schools that school is is really necessary. And I think it's interesting that that's happened because for most of human history, children didn't go to school. You know, it's a relatively recent thing. It's only 1893 that that education was compulsory in the UK. So before that, children didn't have to go to school. But it's what's really interesting, I think, is that over that time, since school, since education became compulsory, there's been this gradual moving more and more towards it being school that's compulsory and school that's considered to be education rather than any other kind of learning. And that's been quite quick. I mean, even if we think of the Queen in the UK, she didn't go to school as a child. It was I guess, of her social class at the time, it was accepted that you'd have a governess, you'd be taught at home. But yet her children and then her grandchildren have sent their children to school. Obviously, they've sent them to expensive public schools, but they've sent them to school. So there's been that sort of shift in this, this is what we should be doing with children. If you're not at school, you're not learning. I don't think there's really evidence for that. And one of the things which I talk about in the book is how people often say to me, well, you know, they won't, there's this kind of expectation that you have to go to school in order to develop, in order to grow up, in order to learn how to do, how to function in life, that school is this great place of learning how to do all these things. And I suppose my mindset is really, but school is a place of learning to do what you're told. That is the absolute most important thing about school, that you need to learn to do what you're told. If you can't do that, it doesn't actually matter how academically gifted you are, how everything else, whatever else about you. If you don't do what you're told, you're going to be in trouble at school. You know, if you just just the basic things like do you line up in the playground? Do you come in when they ask you to come in from (laughs) do you turn up in time? All those things. You can't do that. You're going to be in trouble. So I would firstly question the idea that actually what children are learning at school is what people think they're learning, because I think a lot of what they're learning is to do what they're told. Mm. And I would question whether that's a wonderful skill for later life. I mean, I think it's it's important to be able to choose to do that. But I don't think a simple unquestioning doing what you're told is very useful for most jobs. Because the thing about the unquestioning nature of it, it's a bit like I was talking about with the school uniforms. People just learn to accept that this is how it is. This is how things work. So, you know, I'll just do it because it's easier not to. It's easier than not doing it. But actually, the people who drive change are those who say, come into a job and ask, well, why are we doing it this way? What about if we change things around and did it this way? Couldn't we actually do it better if we did this? And we need that kind of thinking. And I don't think school encourages that sort of thinking. It doesn't encourage people, children, for example, to look at their school and say, oh, maybe this school would run better if we didn't have a school uniform, for example. Or if, it, mm. if they do say that, they're likely to be voted down by the teachers or the staff who have a more, more control over that kind of thing. So I think I think there's a there's a kind of collective. I'm not quite sure what the word is, a collective 
a collective belief that we have that school does a lot of things that it doesn't actually do. Because I think a lot of what goes on in schools is simply simply children developing and schools giving them more and more difficult tasks as they develop and assuming that that development is because of school. And I mean, just to give a really recent example from my own life. So my daughter, who is just 10, she was 10 on Monday, she has never really done any, hand, well, I've never done handwriting. Handwriting is not something either of my children have really done because they don't sit down and write things. So they, you know, they, they might type things, they read things, but they don't do much handwriting. Anyway, uh, last week, my son said, I'd like to do handwriting. Can you order some books about it? So I ordered, got two books, you know, they're like three ninety nine each. They're not very expensive. My daughter picked up one of these books. She was really interested in it. It's about joined up writing. I didn't actually even quite know which book I was ordering. It was a more or less random process. Um, and she was like, oh, I'd like to do this. And she sat down yesterday evening. She started writing, doing joined up writing. Same thing this morning, doing joined up writing. Now, she has not gone through all of the processes that schools say you need to go through in order to learn to write. She didn't, you know, she wasn't made to do printing when she was young. She didn't do practicing. She didn't do what I used to do, which is like lines of A's, lines of E's. She hasn't done any of that. She's gone straight in at the... I'm going to copy this joined up writing level. Mm. And she's able to do that because she's 10 and because she's therefore developed her fine motor skills to that point. Whereas I think a child in school, you'd say, oh, they're able to do joined up writing now when they're 10, because when they were five, we got them to do the print. When they were six, we got them to do these. Do you see what I mean? So I think there's an illusion of school doing this to children when actually a lot of it is simply children growing up and developing skills. Yes, yeah, and and just getting them to try things too too early. Yeah, um, creating problems where you don't need to have them because it's really hard, isn't it? When you're young, I remember how hard it is to hold a pen, get it to write, and then actually when you're older, it's just not so much of a problem anymore because you've developed those skills. But you can develop those skills in loads of ways. So, for example, my daughter, I'm sure the reason she's able to do that quite so easily is because she's an avid drawer. She loves drawing. She has spent hours and hours and hours drawing mostly cats that's what she does and you can see her her cat drawing has massively refined itself over the years and she's become very good at fine motor control through drawing cats but entirely self-driven yes i've never sat down and said let's learn how to draw a cat or today and you know it's it's so arbitrary what school decides everyone needs to do and what they don't you know cat drawing just isn't part of the curriculum and so no one's made to develop their cat drawing skills <laughs> but they could have done <laughs> they could have decided yeah. it's um yeah but the other thing that i think is important because people often bring up um geary and biologically sense biologically primary learning and secondary learning and what geary says is that you know, it's all very well to let children learn the primary kind of biologically driven learning themselves, because they're in the discovery phase, they'll do that. But there's no way that they can acquire the secondary learning, secondary knowledge. I think it's knowledge, the word to use, isn't it? Um, yeah. So this, without schooling. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. This was going to be my next question. Yeah. Um, and I've got the I've got the book open on that page. So I'll just give you just, just in case people aren't familiar with this. Yeah. So you, you write. Um, Geary makes a distinction between primary and secondary knowledge, um, or sometimes it's called primary and secondary cognitive abilities or something. Yeah. Um, primary knowledge includes things we can pick up from the world around us, our native language, 
relating to other people, using tools that we that we see other people using around us. People often talk about things like face recognition, certain aspects of spoken language. So things that things that so we're hardwired to do evolutionarily. Um, and then secondary knowledge is stuff that we didn't need to do in order to survive in prehistory and which therefore our brains have not evolved to learn. And that includes basically everything that happens in schools, reading, writing, algebra, essay writing. None of these were useful to our ancestors. And this is increasingly used um, by people yeah. to, to as an argument for school to say this, like, yeah. like this stuff doesn't come naturally. And this is why. When when people say, oh, like like children learn to walk and talk by themselves, yeah. why can't they learn to do geography, history and art and science by themselves? This mm. is used to, to make that distinction. It's like because yeah. that stuff is natural, we're hardwired to do it. And this other stuff is unnatural. And therefore we need coercion and behaviorism and all of the other tools in the toolbox. Yeah. I mean, it's a theory. It's a model. And I think my that's always been my approach to all of these theories, really, that they're taken as truth when they're not truth. They're a scientific theory, which can never be proven to be the answer or the way. And, then, and in this one, I actually think the theory is quite flawed because it assumes that the two alternatives are school being made to do something or picking something up from your environment, which aren't the two contrasts that I would see at all. So there's two there's two aspects to it. One is um, one is this idea that if you don't make children to go to school, then they'll be learning things through discovery learning. That's what Geary says, isn't it? The discovery learning will only work for the things that we're biologically primed to learn. So research with children's learning actually shows that children move out of this discovery phase into a mastery phase of learning. And Alison Gopnik writes about this. She's a developmental psychologist. And the difference there is that discovery learning is what we see in young children where really they move, they're very much driven by what they enjoy doing and their immediate interests. They move from topic to topic, thing to thing. They ask questions all the time. They're not focused really necessarily on skill development. They're focused on doing something that they like. And they often develop skills in the process of that, but they're not doing it because they want to develop a skill. So they don't learn to talk because they're thinking, I really want to get this talking thing down. I just need, you know, they, they talk because they want to communicate and because they're surrounded with opportunities to learn how to talk. So if they weren't, they wouldn't learn it. But as they get older, they shift into a mastery phase of learning, which is when they're more capable of taking an intentional stance on their learning. So I've seen that in both of my children. Um, around the age of nine, nine or 10, where they're suddenly thinking, I mean, the handwriting is a good example, actually, they're suddenly thinking, I'd like to be able to do this. How can I learn how to do that? Where can I do that? And it might be, I mean, that's very much the method they follow at SMLC as well, that they're encouraging them to think about what would you like to do? How will you do it? How could you break it down? But I see that happening naturally with my children. I see that below the age of nine, they really just weren't into this idea that you had to learn things in advance and then they might be useful later. And that's basically the whole idea that school is based on. You learn things now so they can because it might, they might be helpful later. It's not that you're doing maths now because you need to know how to do this maths or mm. in your life, we're doing it because you'll want it later on. Whereas self-directed education, the thing that's so different about it is you're learning what you learn because it's useful to you now. So both my children learned about percentages from the countdown on their iPads. 
you know, at the top of the battery countdown in the corner, 100% mm. goes down gradually. Quite quickly, they became very aware that low numbers, low percentages were not a good thing and you needed to charge up again. Um, and so that was useful to them. And they wanted to know what that little sign was, the percentage sign. So I told them it was useful information. It was immediately integrated. We didn't have to practice it. And it's the same, you know, my daughter learned about fractions because of working out how to divide a box of ice creams between the four of, the four of us. There's like six ice creams in the box, four ice creams. And she was like, hmm, that's going to be one and a half each. How are we going to do that? So she's using maths in that kind of practical way. She's learning maths as she needs it, as opposed to we'll learn the maths now so you'll be able to use it if we need it. Yeah. And, and I mean, there's, there's a lot there, isn't there? Because you're right that school is sort of based on this premise that we're learning stuff now and it's sort of like preparation for the future, that this stuff yeah. will be useful or may be useful in the future. And even though, you know, I think most teachers and certainly many students, you know, so many students ask, what's, what's the point of this? Why am I learning this? How is this going to be useful in my life? And there's often not a good answer to that question. And then the answer becomes, well, it's not the actual content that's important. It's just like the fact that you're able to show that you're able to learn content, regardless yeah. of how useful it is. And yeah. that, that your ability to get a C in science, say, it's, it's, it's a signifier to a future employer that you're yeah. able to function at a certain level. Yeah, and it'll be used as a signifier for the rest of your life. <laughs> also, I mean, with GCSEs and things, yes. Um, it's, I think it, it is a fundamental principle of school and I think it's one of the things that makes school so difficult for lots of children that it's not about what do I want to know and learn now but going back to Geary one of the reasons I think his theory doesn't really add up is that um, all of us are learning secondary knowledge all the time not through discovery I mean I'm learning all the time I'm researching things reading about things talking to people making connections that's all acquiring information which I wouldn't have needed in a hunter-gatherer stage of human development, of human <laughs> evolution, but I don't need to be made to do it. And I don't understand why the, the, my big bugbear with all of these theories is why do we think that between the ages of five and 16, people need to be made to do these things? But after the age of 16, we pretty well, we, we understand that actually they all choose to do them if they want to, but they don't have to be made to do it. You know, People choose to go to university. I chose to do a PhD afterwards, which was extraordinarily hard. Definitely not something that would have been useful to me thousands of years ago. Entirely academic, but I chose to do it. And I had the skills to do it, but I wasn't made to do it. And that's the bit which I think is is just doesn't actually make sense to me. Why do we think that children have to be made to do things at this stage when adults are all around learning all kinds of things in a non-discovery way? Do you see what I mean? It's like yeah, we yeah. think that that switch from discovery to mastery will only happen if we make children do it at school. And so effectively, we start doing that from reception, year one. We start saying, you know, you've got to practice this so you're going to be better at it. And I'm saying, what if that actually that stage kicks in a bit later and it kicks in naturally and we don't have to make them do it. But if we and if we didn't, we might avoid a lot of the damage that we do by trying to make them because yes. we do damage when we're making them do things we do damage. We develop, they develop things like phobias or maths phobia, or they develop an aversion to reading because they're being made to do it. And humans don't like being made to do things. 
I've noticed that <laughs> adult, adults as well like people yep. I, I, lots of my work at the moment is around change management and like people don't like being told what to do even when they, it's a really good idea and it's self-evidently a good idea as like for example going outside because it stopped raining <laughs> like yeah that, that seems like a self-evidently good thing to do but 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 just the very fact that it's not your own idea like there's, there's just something about that it's very yeah. dis- it's a disempowering thing yeah, and if you don't feel you have a choice to say no, you see, I think that's what's really important. That you that is one thing having a suggestion, but you need to freely feel, okay, this is a suggestion I can weigh up on my own merits, on the, its own merits, and then if I want to, I can say no, thanks. I don't think yeah. that's a good idea. It's when it's this is what you're going to do that we have the problem. Yeah, yeah, and I I like how the, there's lots of these sort of vignettes in the book, which I think are like amalgams of young people that you've met over the years. Yeah where you're talking about, for example, there's a, there's a, there was, a, I can't remember, a young girl who like was just refusing to go outside and yeah. that was becoming, you know, a problem. And, but, the, but there the, the were sort of very practical suggestions in the book for how to negotiate these very tricky sort of real world situations where you're like, well, we can't just be prisoners to, to this four-year-old child for the whole, yeah. for our whole life. So, but how can we make it so that there are real choices for her on some days and she accepts that on other days she just has to come out with us to take you know to, to do the shopping or whatever it might be yeah. um and another thing that you make a really strong point of in the book is the way in which learning is is non-linear there's a lovely mm-hmm. diagram where like self-directed oh, yeah. <laughs> learning is just like a big big ball of wool um and 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 how they often sort of go back so sometimes you know children who are nine or ten sometimes revisit things that they were really interested in earlier in their life and they, they go back through and watch all the pepper pigs again for example or they're playing with toys that they used to do i remember i had sort of a, a flourish of, of of lego again in my sort of like mid-teens yeah. i went back and just got all the lego out and you know like and that, that's something that again would be considered to be you know like a like that's not well it's not even considered it's just not an option is it in the mainstream yeah. system it's like the the agenda for learning is always set from on high uh and and, and those, those, those <laughs> yeah and it has to be progressive and those natural opportunities and this is the thing it seems like the the most fundamental thing that we understand about child development is that it is so unbelievably diverse and non-uniform um and and i mean i, I wonder like, like part of the problem that we face here is like is that it's just about like the, the, there are lots of kids <laughs> you know there are lots of kids and if you try to if you try to imagine scaling up as like a self-directed approach to learning like places like Sudbury Valley and SMLC are often yeah. fairly sort of small they're yeah. not like secondary schools where, where you've got 2,000 kids plus all sort of in a free-for-all doing what they want I think that some people would be probably having hairs standing on the backs of their necks even just listening to this they can't really see how this could scale um, and that's something that we we could maybe come come on to later unless you have an initial response to that question well Places like Sudbury Valley School and SMLC don't cost any more than these state school, these big state schools. In fact, it's one of the things that they try to prioritise is to show that this can be a low cost model. Yeah, it's often so about it's, half the half the cost. It's, isn't it? it's really not expensive. So I think there is just something about when we're thinking about education in a different way, when we're prioritising a different thing, we, we're spending money in a different way actually, and that does free things up. I mean, I agree. I don't think 2,000 kids doing running freeform is going to be good. Particularly also, though, it might it might work, but I think in for that, in a way, you need to start that kind of thing early because 
if you do this with children from the beginning, then you avoid a lot of the issues between adults and children that arise in schools. Because if you're never bringing in the idea that adults are there to make children do things, then children will relate to adults in a different way and they'll relate to learning in a different way. So there's one aspect of that, but obviously that isn't something we can just do. Um, but I think the answer with big schools, I don't know what Ian said, but would be you'd have to break them down. You'd have Because I think Ian makes a really good point that part of why these communities can run the way they do is because they're small and because people know each other within them. And when you're, I was, I went to, my state comprehensive school was over a thousand kids, um, eight or nine form entry. And I remember the anonymity of it. You had, I didn't even know everybody else in my year group, yeah. let alone people in other years. Most of the teachers had no idea who I was. And there's something about being that anonymous every day, knowing that People just don't know who they you are. Yeah, <laughs> and I it's don't really, think, I don't, it's really unsafe. It is. I don't think, and I think that's a serious problem of the way that schools are organised. And I yeah. can see it seems like efficiency of scale. But of course, one of the reasons that secondary schools are organised that way is because we have this idea that we need these highly specialised teachers who will only, it only works to have, you know, your physics teacher and your biology teacher if you've got enough kids for them to teach that's all right, the time. Yeah. But if you're taking a more self-directed or self-managed approach, you don't actually need to have adults with all of that level of specialist knowledge because you are putting the children in charge of where they find their learning and they can find it from adults, but the adults don't need to hold it all. The adults need to be able to help the children find it. But, you know, the information is out there. You don't, you need someone to help you make sense of it, but you don't necessarily need somebody who knows the whole whatever it is, A-level English curriculum back and front, back and forwards in order for you to be able to do A-level English. In the same way as like, you know, when we become adults, the things that we learn and the things that we do, there is no longer anybody else who is meant to be the expert checking over us, who says, it, it reminds, you know, John Taylor Gatto in his book, um, which is it, oh, it's the seven, the seven lessons, the seven hidden lessons of school. Do you know that article, The Hidden Curriculum? Yeah, yeah. One of the things he says that people learn at school, children learn at school, is that there's always an expert who knows better and who oversees what yes. they're learning. And I really felt, I really resonated with that. I felt, wow, I really learned that at school. I'm really, even now, expecting there to be some higher expert who says, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. <laughs> and you don't, what if you don't actually need those people? You know, what if you, what if it's a more collaborative experience, then you can have a different set of adults. You don't have to have every specialism in the same way. You need to have access to those specialisms, but they don't need to be someone who's there all the time with you in the same sense that way that they are at a secondary school. No, um, and, in, and in the internet age, dare I say it, you know, this information is, yeah. is all there now where, when it, it, you know, it wasn't the case sort of 10 or 15 years ago. Um, and that that is really quite a game changing. You make the point in the book that there are now, you know, multiple devices in most homes. That, yeah. uh, like it's like the the thing that like I think Ian Gilbert said, you know, people would people went went to war. We went to war with with Holland or something over nutmeg. It's like <laughs> if you could imagine like having a little box that contains all of the answers to everything. It's literally like the Alexia yeah. of life. The Holy Grail is the iPhone or the iPad or whatever. It's amazing. It's yeah. unbelievable that we've got this technology. And again, it's in, when you've got all this information there, the problem isn't. The lack of information, which is what schools assume that it is, that children need to be given information. The problem is 
Do you want to find that information? Are you interested in that information? Do you know how to find it? Do you know how, what to do with it? And yet, unfortunately, by sitting children in rows and telling them things, we remove them from that skill. We prevent them from learning that skill because they learn that what they should be, what they should be doing is listening and finding the right answers. Um, and I mean, I didn't, I went to very many different schools, but I certainly learned at school that there was a right answer and that I had to get it right and that my job was to get it right. And actually, when I went to university, I got very low marks in my essays when I started. And my tutors said, you know, you're just behaving like you're at school. You're just looking for the answers and regurgitate them. And it took me probably two years of my university degree to work out that actually they were expecting something different because I'd never learned that. I'd never been taught that. And what about if right from early on we were expecting children to think about what they were doing, critically about what they were doing, and to be asking questions that were kind of out of out of field and prioritizing that over retaining large amounts of information. And I think yeah, one of the things I talk about in my book is how people often say to me when I talk about self-directed education, they often say, but, you know, how will anybody learn science? How's anybody going to learn their times tables? And often they say, I wish I'd been taught those things at school. I was never taught science well at school and I felt the gap all my life. And it's like, but why do you feel all the gap all your life? This information isn't secret. You know, if you want to catch up on school science, go and buy a science textbook and read it or watch some videos. You know, you can catch up on school science really quite quickly. There isn't some magic, but somehow it feels like that, that at school there's some magic about how we're taught at school, even though when we examine what we learned at school, all of us know that actually a lot of what we learned we haven't used since, a lot of what we learned we haven't retained, and it didn't prepare us for using things, using those subjects necessarily. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so let's come on to reading, um, and then I'd like to ask you about computer games and use of technology oh, yeah. as well, because that uh, that has really made me made me uh, question some of my own biases mm-hmm. around screen screen use and so on. Um, but let's do reading first. Yep. So that it sort of links to what Geary was what we were talking about a few yep. moments ago. That reading is one of those biologically secondary things that doesn't come naturally. Um, and there's a really interesting conversation to be had here um, because, you know, like somebody like Peter Gray, who, you know, wrote the foreword to your book, I, I've heard him say, you know, like I, he said, I've never known somebody who, who like, like kids learn to read, but they, 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 they do it in their own sweet time and some of them do it much, much later. They certainly don't usually do it at three or four, although some do, mm. you know, uh, yeah. the majority don't. Um, and and it's quite varied. And in the book, you write about your your experience with your own uh, ch- children. So your son, mm-hmm. um, you said you described when he, he sort of saw a sign that said "zone" at some point. He said, "Does yeah. that say zombie?" And, yeah. and for him, he was away. And then he was, you know, he was off. And yeah. That ignited. Was it around the age of eight or ten? Eight. Or something? Yeah, he learnt to read between the age of eight and ten. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so and so Peter Gray's take on this, and and Peter Gray talks about how sometimes it's like you know kids as old as sort of 17 or 18 in yeah. their very late teens it's quite rare but at the at the tail end of the bell curve if you want to put it in those terms yeah there are some people who come to this very very late um and yet like at the back of my mind i'm sort of thinking but there are also illiterate people you know there yeah. are people who never learn and to read to yeah. read 
and so and so i don't i'm not i don't know um whether just having a totally laissez-faire approach to to this i don't know whether peter gray might say that actually you know certain conditions so for example at sudbury valley i think that there's a there's a sort of a culture of reading in the sense that there's Mm -hmm. lots of books around and that you know i think maybe he would say that if young people are in a in a place where where reading is an option, where where books yeah. are talked about, but where it's not forced, then they will then they will sort of switch on. Is that is that yes. is that what you think the answer to that question is? Yeah, I mean that's actually something I thought a lot about when I first started um, unschooling my children. I had this exactly the same question. But hang on a minute, there are millions of children in the world not learning to read. So how can it be that they're all going to learn to read? And of course, we always there's always these caveats which often don't get mentioned, that we really mean everybody who is living in a society where they are surrounded with people who can read and opportunities to read and text. And that is crucial. If you're in a society where most adults around you can't read, you what, why would you, how are you going to learn to read? Mm. You need to see these examples. And even though people often talk, talk about you know, children teaching themselves to read, they're watching, they're observing other people, they're seeing the process, and they have to have that, I think. I don't think it's possible for somebody to learn anything without seeing it around them in some way. Yeah. Um, and Peter Gray says that, yes, for children who are in an environment, I mean, for example, just to think about language, um, if your children are speaking a different language at home and are surrounded with a different language to the majority language, they won't necessarily acquire that majority language just but you know they it's not we none of us pick up another language naturally do we without actually being surrounded by it and it's just the same with reading you need to be surrounded by it in some ways but also i think there's often a misunderstanding about self-directed education that it always means picking things up naturally and it doesn't i mean picking things up from your environment naturally is one way of learning There are many other ways of learning. I know of self-directed children who say, I want to learn to read. Can you buy me some reading books and sit down and read with me? And and an adult would say, yeah, of course. So it's again, it's not about the pedagogy, really. It's about the child having that opportunity to say to see the need to read and to want to read. And then when they do, providing them with whatever they might need to learn to read. But it's the difference is when we say to all four or five year olds, you all need to learn to read now. And this is what we're going to do. Do you see what I mean? Mm. So it's really just about that, that it's about waiting for that spark of a child who sees the need, because basically as a psychologist, I just see that learning is so much more efficient when the learner sees the point in it and is interested. And I've, I noticed that so much in my own learning that, when I was training to be a clinical psychologist, we had to we attended lots of lectures and we had to learn about you know depression, anxiety, OCD, all these different things. And we would learn about them in quite a theoretical way. But at the same time, we had to work clinically. So we would spend two days a week on placement and we'd be seeing clients with some of these problems. And I noticed really quickly how whenever I had a client with a particular issue, suddenly all the books were interesting. So all the books about depression, if I had a client with depression, suddenly I'd be whipping through them, (laughs) learning all sorts of things about depression, thinking, great, I can try this out. And I would literally be trying it out week by week, you know, because I'd be seeing them every week for an hour. I'd be reading the books and then trying it out. 
but well before I had the client or when I didn't have the client, I actually found it really hard work to make my way through these books and to retain the information. So I think what we're doing is we're trying to help our children learn with that amazing efficiency and effectiveness, which comes when they are like, you know what, this is useful and interesting to me because this is important in my life now. And I think with lots of self-directed children, you see that happening later because they can, they're capable of doing so much learning without reading, which children in schools aren't capable of, aren't able to do because the school is a restricted learning environment. It doesn't, it doesn't enable you to listen to lots of audiobooks, for example, or to watch lots of videos to learn yeah. or to chat to people all the time to learn. All of those things are barred effectively. So you have to be able to read because that's the main source of learning things in school. But I do think it's entirely possible for children not to learn to read. Um, but I think that's pretty rare in a Western society. Yeah. And then, and then there's also a distinction between being able to read and being a reader. Yeah. And we know that there are huge, I think it's like three million adults in the UK, for example, who yeah. like never pick up a book ever. Um, and yeah. who, you know, who just don't, don't see themselves as readers. Um, and they will have all, you know, the majority of those will have gone through school and have been, you know, done the Jack and Jill books and all the rest of it. And, the, you know, the, they were taught this, but it doesn't catch light. Like, it, mm. with the, despite the best efforts and intentions of, of all of the teachers in the system, uh, it doesn't work um, as, a, as a way of getting lots of people interested. And that because, because again, it might be it's just because it's in. coming, yeah, exactly, outside in. And it's that, like, I don't like being told what to do. And they associate reading, especially if they were struggling to read, if they were behind the curve, which, you know, by definition, half of kids are below average readers, yeah. aren't they, at any, at any point in time, um, that they're going to associate reading with failure, with a, with a sense that they are not as smart as other people. And the, at, that, at that point, the only choice that they have is to vote with their feet and to say, well, I'm just going to opt out of that game altogether. Yes, or the other choice they have is is to get diagnosis. <laughs> so again, it comes back to what we were talking about with ADHD, that there's a tendency, then we diagnose these children with a learning disability. So we diagnose them with dyslexia and say, this child has difficulty learning to read, which in effect says, people often talk about the brain or bl blame dilemma that we put people in that either it's your fault meaning you're lazy or not trying hard enough or there's something wrong with your brain and those are the only two options and <clears throat> what about if there's a third option with reading for example which is you're just not ready to learn to read right now and this isn't you know you're learning other things and perhaps if we just backed off with reading for a while, you might learn to read when you're eight or nine, and that won't be a problem. Because I also see, as a clinician, I've seen so many people who have a long-standing sense of themselves as a failure from early experiences at school. So, for example, they've gone to school and they've tried to learn to read. Everybody else is learning to read. They can't do it. Why can't they do it? No one can quite understand why. They get loads of extra help. They get all the stuff is brought in and they get sent off and get diagnosed with dyslexia and they carry this sense with them for the rest of their lives that I'm no good I'm a failure and I think it's just a tragedy that we're doing that to people when perhaps I mean Harriet Patterson's research shows that with home educated children they learn to read in this really wide window and that they don't learn to perceive themselves as a failure like my own children who both are learning have learned to read between the ages of eight and ten they just don't see that as a problem because it's never been a problem. And among the, the children that they spend their time with, many of them 
learned to read around that time or even a bit later. And I suppose even more importantly, they aren't compared with the children that they spend their time with on reading. And I think that's one of the really destructive things that school does is it compares children with others of their own age group right from very early on. Even if they, even if it's not done explicitly by the school, and I mean often it is by dividing them into ability groups, that kind of thing. But the children see everybody else of the same age, them doing the same things. I mean, I remember my son who did go, he went to preschool and he's a July birthday. He went to preschool with the kids who were obviously the whole year group above him. And he came back really early on. He said, I'm no good at drawing. And he said, oh, you know, this other little girl, she's really good at drawing. And I knew this other little girl and she was September birthday. So she was actually 10 months older than my son. And she was, you know, they were four, three and four. So this was a big deal. It's like a quarter of her life older. Mm. And I could well believe that her drawing was hugely superior to his drawing. And he'd already clocked that and noticed. Yeah. And he already and he internalized that as I'm no good at drawing. And that just really made me think, how much are we doing this to kids all the time, to teaching them effectively that they're no good at things just because other kids are doing things at a different time to them? Yeah, yeah, because it's just developmentally inappropriate to be to be asking them to do certain things at certain times. Yeah, well, they're just focused on learning other things because it's a very narrow set of things that we compare children on. I think I might, I can't remember if I said that in the book or it's in an article, but you know, no one ever really gets compared on their ability playing Minecraft, for example. There are ranking isn't really a thing with that. So, I mean, maybe among kids it is, but at school, no one's going to say, you know, you lot are the really clever ones. Look how amazing your Minecraft skills are. Whereas you lot are the basic novices who've never even tried playing Minecraft. <laughs> that just isn't, this isn't even featured, but yet reading, math, some things we pick out and we say, these are the things that mark your value as a person. Yes. If you're really good at reading, really good at maths, you are clever, you are smart, you are bright. We've got all these positive things that go with being good at those things specifically. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really tragic that we do that because we don't need to. I think I, I write about in the book how driving test is a good example of a test that doesn't have this kind of intrinsic sense of one's personal worth about it. I, I personally failed my driving test three times, so maybe that's why I think that. But I failed my driving test three times. I have absolutely no hang-ups about having failed my driving test three times. I can drive perfectly well. I get around, no problem. I see, think of myself as a good driver. But when I did my, um, I did the IB, I didn't do A-levels. And I did the IB and I did French as a second language and I got a five in French, right? Top is seven. So this is kind of like a BC. And I was really disappointed in myself. And I still kind of have a sense of myself as someone who isn't very good at French. We've now lived in France for two years. I actually speak French. <laughs> but I still carry this sense of, you know, slight injustice that I was yeah. stamped with a five in French. <laughs> yeah, well, this stuff, it, it really lasts, it lasts, doesn't it? This is something yeah. that's come up a number of times uh, with people in this podcast. People uh, failing the 11 plus is a big one or just like an offhand comment of a teacher calling somebody stupid or saying, you know, you're not going to amount to much. There's a lot of that, and you hear about it still going on incredibly. I don't know why a teacher would ever think that that was a good thing to say. They're um, people, aren't they? So they're just they're just being people. <laughs> but yeah. they're people with a massive amount of influence. They sure are, and it's almost it's almost dizzying when you when you sort of when you realise the extent to which you know young people will really remember what happens um, 
you know, uh, in your presence. Mm. Um, okay, so you, you talked about Minecraft just now. Let's let's get yeah. on to computer games because this is something that that uh, as I say, it, it's really making me sort of reevaluate my my own attitudes to to computer games. So so you you have a very sort of you seem. Um, what's that phrase intensely relaxed <laughs> about <laughs> about the idea of young people playing computer games for as long as they like almost um yeah. or maybe not even almost maybe <laughs> maybe i'm qualifying that for you um and and the way that you frame this or at least part of it is that is that playing computer games is is a space is a place in which young people have autonomy and control and and that they can develop a high level of competence and therefore yeah. start to feel really good about themselves. And actually, this is not necessarily, sometimes it's seen as a problem. And if a young person is playing lots of computer games, it might be considered like we need to restrict their screen time and punish them by sort of taking their iPad away from them, say. But actually, you were saying well, this is the, this is the way that they are coping at this point in time. So I think there's lots of different things that can go on with computer games. And I don't, I would never say that, all computer game use isn't ever isn't a problem. I think that it can be a problem, particularly as it, it can it can be a way that children are withdrawing from other things in their life, or because it can be a way of avoiding facing the world and things that are going on. But I do think that it's a much less. It, I don't think video games in themselves are dangerous. So I know there's a lot of talk about them being addictive, about them being. Do, to, doing terrible things to children's brains. I don't think, I don't see that in the children I see around me. And I see children, I, I know a lot of children who are not restricted in how long they can spend on computer games because that's the, that's a, a kind of unschooling ethos would be that children can make those choices for themselves. Part of the reason I'm so relaxed about it is because I see the damage that control does to the relationship between a parent and child. And if I'm saying that I think control generates resistance, which I think it often does, and it and it can damage learning, I think the same goes for computer games. So, for example, if you if you say to your children, you know, it, you can only spend 30 minutes a day or one hour a day on the computer game, you have changed their relationship with that game, but you've also changed your relationship with them because you've now become a controller of their time, which they're probably going to push back against. But they've also you've also made this kind of some kind of special thing as opposed to other activities, because presumably you're not also limiting the amount of time they spend reading a book or the amount of time that they spend um, playing outside. So you've said there's something about this activity which is different and which therefore means I'm going to control it because I think maybe it's dangerous for you. And perhaps you are not able to control your own behavior around this computer game. So therefore, I'm going to do it for you. So I think that's quite a strong message to be giving children. And I think a lot of when parents say, oh, but, you know, they look like they're addicted. I think a lot of what we see as addictive behavior is a result of the control that parents bring in. So, for example, if a child's only allowed to play on a computer game for one hour a day, generally, they'll make very sure that they get that one hour a day. You know, if this is something they really enjoy, they're going to make sure they get it. And they may, for example, insist that you come back from the beach or the park or something because they don't want to miss out on their one hour a day. They may also resist when they're being taken when they're being told their time is up because they haven't finished the game they're playing. And they'll be like, no, how dare you say that I've got to finish. So you get that kind of behavior. And then parents say, oh, look, it's proof 
they're addicted. They can't regulate their own time. I better carry on doing it really strictly. So you get into this kind of cycle, which I think if we can step out of it, then we give children the opportunity to learn how to regulate their own use. And I think that's a really important thing for children to learn, because at some point, I mean, all control-based strategies have a sell-by date, yeah? Unless you're planning to control your children forever, at some point, the children will leave home or they'll grow up and you'll have to be like, okay, I can no longer control you. You'll, you have to make these choices for yourself. So I see it more as the question is, do I want them to be able to learn how to deal with these things whilst I still have quite a lot of influence? They're quite young. They're in my house. Or am I going to control them strictly while they're in my house? And then off they'll go and they'll have to learn how to regulate those things for themselves. Because I don't think people learn how to regulate themselves when they're being strictly controlled. And I guess that's a probably a, a difference I have with a lot of maybe more traditional school think, schooling thinking, which is that if you control children in the right ways, they will look, learn those habits for themselves and they will do that themselves. And then they will effectively carry on living those things that I have infiltrated in them. They'll become habits. I, you know, from my evidence of what I saw happening around me when I was at university or what I see happening around me and young people I work with, I don't really think that works. If you restrict someone from doing something that they really enjoy to only an hour a day, for example, I think what happens is that when they when your influence stops, they go for it. <laughs> and they and it's quite hard for them to learn how to manage that, how to because I think what we're doing with self-directed education is we're helping children learn to manage their own internal drives, their own internal motivation. So we're helping them to think about, is this something I want to be spending all my time on? Maybe it is. Maybe that's what I see my life going forward. Maybe I want to be a games designer and maybe actually all of these games I'm playing is, is, are effectively research and I'm learning a lo loads about everything. Or maybe it's not. I mean, just to take the example of my own two children. They've both had the, they can both play computer games as much as they want. One of my children plays a lot and he now runs servers and he is for him it's a really social thing so i was also saying when you were talking about autonomy and competence so these are the this you're referring to self determination theory where the um, internally driven motivation is thought to be best nurtured by three factors autonomy competence and relatedness with other people so i see my son getting all three of those through video games because he plays with a group of other kids his age I can hear them being really social, really they're negotiating rules, they're working out how this should all happen. There's a really, he's got all three of those in there. My daughter really isn't that into computer games at all. She spends almost all her time making things and doing art. And that's just how she is. And in fact, she when we go anywhere, she refuses to take her iPad with her because she says, well, if I have it with me, the other kids will just want to do that. Because, of course, if we make, if we socialise with kids who have controls on their screens, then that's what they want to do. They've got that they've got a sort of urge to do it. And she's like, I'm going to leave it at home because I don't want to do that. I want to do other things when I'm with ki other kids. OK, fine. So I see them both having having learnt to regulate themselves in their own way. And if I was restricting my son, who's the big user, I would be cutting out his opportunities to learn all those things. I would be saying to him, this is not the right place for you to learn these things. You need to go and learn them somewhere else. And I really can't think of an equivalent of where he would be able to do that because the stuff he can do on the computer game, particularly with games like Minecraft, which is a sandbox game. So 
it's just so complex. You know, there's such a level of complexity there, which I couldn't do at his age because we there was nothing where I had the same opportunity. So I mean, what I usually say to parents who are worried about what their children are doing in a computer game is try and join with them, find out what they're doing, look at what they're doing. Because often there's this kind of anonymous fear of, oh, they're just wasting their time. And actually, almost always, when you get in there with them, you find they're doing all sorts of stuff that you had no idea about. You know, I talked to a mother recently and she was like, I just thought he was wasting his time on this game. Then I sat down with him and had a look. And then I realized he's actually recording videos, editing them and creating a whole like montage of stories in this game. So kids use these games in very different ways. So it's interesting to say we, we, what things we favor in terms of thinking children should be doing them and what things we don't. So imaginative play is one of those things that for young children at least is generally considered to be a really good thing. We try and encourage small children to doing imaginative play. We set things up for them to do that. But what I've seen with my kids and other self-directed kids is that they do an enormous amount of imaginative play through computer games. So they might play imaginatively all together in Minecraft, but because it's in a computer game, it doesn't get valued. We think it's just, in quotes, wasting time again. And I think we've really got to, we really need to appreciate, we need to appreciate the things our children appreciate and the things our children love to do, because that's where they're learning most. And so I, I think, and I just think, yeah, that bringing in the control changes their relationship with it in a way that I really wouldn't want to risk doing. I wouldn't want to risk changing my son's relationship with what he's doing, because I know that he is developing that ability to say, I've had enough of this now. And he does actually, he comes out of his room and said, I've had enough of being on a computer. Let's do something else. Let's play a board game. Let's go for a walk. And he's mm. the one who's in control of that. And I think for his long-term mental health, that will be much more helpful. Yes. Yeah, thank you. It's a it's a compelling argument, I think. And so do you do you draw a distinction between playing computer games and social media? Because it seems like that that like I don't know a huge amount of this, but I was I was um reading some stuff. I know Jonathan Haidt, who um I don't know if you know his work. I actually just reading his book. He has a whole chapter on how damaging social media is for mental health, doesn't he? There you go. Yeah, yeah. 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 And and how, you know, we we see that um that you know, uh, suicide rates and self-harm and the incidence of mental health and anxiety disorders is increasing. And it seems that it's it's especially damaging. It's those like one to many um social media platforms like tiktok or instagram where there's lots of sort of a sense of judgment and kids who are reporting sort of like self-harming if if not enough kids like their video within a few minutes of uploading it say you know yeah. it becomes very sort of complicated um i imagine that you've seen a fair amount of that through your work as a, as a psychologist um do you do you um see that there's a problem around those particular applications well, I mean, the problem is kids and how they're treating each other in the sense that it's the people behind the social media that's the problem rather than the thing. Do you see what I mean? So, well, I guess I have a few thoughts about it. One is that I, I found it interesting in Jonathan Haidt's book that it's that he doesn't talk about school at all, because part of my theory as to why kids are getting 
are reporting higher rates of anxiety and depression is that school is becoming more pressured. They're being told earlier on they've got to measure up to certain standards and they're being encouraged to compare themselves against other people from really, really early on. And then you get these things like TikTok where it's all about comparing yourself against other people. So it kind of fits into a way that they're being trained to think about themselves and the world. I mean, the way I would deal with social media, and I'm not properly dealing with it yet because my children are still relatively young, um, but I have I have had kids, I have seen kids clinically who've managed it. Again, my basic policy would be you need to be there with them with as the parent because what will happen if you ban these things, they become the secret. They become the thing that the child can't talk to you about. Or if you've got a compliant child, they don't use them. And then again, when they leave home, they're suddenly using these things without you being there. So I actually see this window of time when they're around and they're learning to use these things and you'll still have influence as a parent as an opportunity to talk about all these issues. And I do talk about them with my children. I talk about already we talk about social media and about comparisons. And, and I would hope that by doing that, and I know that from people with older children, this is what happens, that they would feel able to talk to me about how their friends use social media, how they're using social media, and if things are coming up that they're uncomfortable on social media. And I don't think that banning them from that is going to make it more likely that they'll come to me. So again, it's this thing of, yes, I can see the concerns about it. And I can see, I know from my own experience that using too much social media is not great for my mental health. But I do think that's a relationship that they're going to have to work out for themselves. And I would rather they're working that out with me in collaboration with them rather than with me as a kind of banner. Do you see what I mean? Yes. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, you, so you're not saying that you would ban it, but that you would use it for an ongoing conversation about oh, these absolutely. issues. Absolutely. All of these things I have ongoing conversations with. Yeah, 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 that that makes me feel better because <laughs> that's pretty much where I'm at with with my son, um, and he is more into gaming than he is into social media. But he definitely flicks through Instagram. And that, as an example, like he's in year ten, he's got these mock exams coming up, and he saw a girl in his year who'd like produced a, a, a huge pile of flashcards, and she'd stuck a photo uh, of it on Instagram, and he was starting to think, oh my goodness, panic. like yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm not measuring up. Literally, yeah. like measured in inches, like yeah. <laughs> like I've done twelve inch pile of 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 flashcards. Um, yeah, yeah. I suppose my my basic strategy would just be that control is rarely the right answer because you lose so much when you put in a strict control. But that doesn't mean, and I suppose that's another thing as a psychologist. That doesn't mean that I wouldn't see if I saw a child who was really unhappy because of being bullied on social media. I might well recommend to them and their parents that the best thing to do would simply be to delete the account right now, that they don't have to be okay with that. And they, again, they can, they can say no, or they can say yes, but I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying that it's always okay. Do you see what I mean? I think that's the, the, the I, I sometimes find that people put me into this position where they're saying, oh, well, you know, but my child was really unhappy and was on social media all the time. Would you suggest I just let them get on with it? No, absolutely not. You have to look at each person in that, in the specific situation for some kids for example they might be being really badly bullied on social media and they're really unhappy at school and the two things are intertwined and again banning one thing won't actually solve that problem
so in the in the final part of the book, in the afterword, you identify four sort of four key concepts really as, that that illuminate why it is that uh, that you think that uh, that schools are inappropriate as as instruments for helping young people grow and develop and learn. Um, one of them is about control. We start by saying schooling is based on the assumption that without being controlled, a child will learn nothing of value. Uh, this belief goes beyond the mainstream. There are many alternative and progressive schools who impose a different set of values, but who impose it nonetheless. Um, and so, and then power is the second one, which is really fascinating. You say there's a huge disconnect in the way that schooling is talked about as empowering, mm -hmm. essential and life enhancing. Um, but it seems like, and then you end that section by saying, it seems that, um, oh, where is it? It, it, it seems strange that um, that something that would be empowering would, would take all of the power away from, from somebody. <laughs> it makes no sense, does it? No. Make, take away someone's power for 12 years and tell them that this is the route to empowerment. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bizarre, mind-twisting thing to say to people. Yeah, yeah. And it says, you say in this section, uh, children tell us through their words and behaviours that school can be a hostile environment for them. They tell us that they feel powerless and that they need something different. Then in many cases, the response is to call these children disordered. By doing so, we, have, we avoid having to listen to what they are telling us about the school and we locate the problem in the child. Um, and again, that's a power play, isn't it? Um, and the third, one, the third one is context, which is yeah. a bit like what you were just talking about with with the computer games or with social media access it's like you know context is always important right and you need yeah. to understand the context but school removes uh, the learning from context so much of it is abstract uh, and it's like you're just being taught this because because um you know you're five you know or because <laughs> you're 10 um and you say again the psychological paradox is being set up. Sorry, I'm just, I'm just quoting yeah, your book back at you now. But it's a really good bit. Because, um, well, this is where it all comes together. We know that learning is easier in context and that context provides motivation for children to learn. Um, and but, it, but it's very decontextualised. And then the fourth and final one, you say, which is very close to your own heart and to your own work, is anxiety. Um, and so... Yeah, I mean, do you, do, you, do, you want to speak, just, do you want to speak to the anxiety bit rather than yeah, quoting your own book? I was back just going to say about anxiety, because one of the things I wanted to say when you were talking about rising rates of anxiety and depression in young people, there's an ongoing controversy. And we, we talked about this a bit earlier about um, medicalizing distress, whether we label young people's distress as a mental health problem or whether we say being distressed is part of being human. And people feel distressed when things aren't right around them. But also sometimes they feel distressed because they are changing. You know, they're learning and growing. It's it's OK to sometimes feel distressed. Um, but in particular, I think what I was talking about in the book is the way that schools use anxiety to try and motivate children. So from early on, you know, children know that they're going to be judged on their work which is an anxiety-provoking thing to do to people. And that's schools work on the premise that this will motivate them because it all sort of fits together with the idea that once you take learning out of context and once you prevent people from being able to choose what they do, you've then got the puzzle of 
So how are we going to get them to do what we want them to do? Because the natural drives that were there of someone choosing to do something because they're really interested or somebody choosing to do something because they need to learn that for their environment, we've taken those two things away. So because we've done that, we've got to do something else. And that something else is trying to motivate children externally. And often it's through anxiety. It's through rewards and punishments, Hmm. both of which actually create anxiety. So rewards are often talked about as the, you know, the friendly, positive side of behavior management. But actually, if you get a reward, then that's great. But you instantly may start to be worried about not getting it the Mm. next time. And I was certainly like that as a child. I was someone who got high marks for everything. And I was really anxious about not getting them one time and what that would mean. So school does this all the time that we try and motivate children and we think and that schools think that that's a good way to motivate children that if perhaps if they're not anxious they won't they won't do what they're meant to be doing and unfortunately you can't really control how much anxiety someone will feel from what you do so some children respond so badly to this kind of situation that they're actually in a continual state of kind of anxiety panic about very little things at school like forgetting their PE kit or not having their, you know, not having their homework diary completed, all those kind of things, because the way that they're talked to makes them feel bad. And then they get in a cycle of not being able to learn because anxiety is a survival response. And when you're in a state of high anxiety, you cannot learn effectively. You're just focused on survival when you're in a really state uh, state of high anxiety. It's like you're about to be attacked by a wild animal. You know, when you're being attacked by a wild animal, it isn't the best moment to sit down and try and understand fractions. You just want to keep yourself safe. And for a fair proportion of children, they're they're in that kind of state of anxiety, not just because of the way the school system works, but also because they're in this environment of their peers all the time. They're being compared with their peers all the time. They can't get away from their peers. And so it's very hard for them to feel safe. And I think people learn best when they feel psychologically safe. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, and so let's say that they, if, if there are any um, parents who are listening to this who may be struggling with uh, their children in, in mainstream school, and, and recently um, I spoke with, um, with Ellie Costello and Fran Morgan from Square Pegs, yeah. who I know you know, um, also Brightonians or Hovian, yeah. Hovians, Brighton and yeah. Hovians. Um, and there, there's no shortage of square pegs in round holes. And some of the numbers mm-hmm. that they talk about, there's something like three quarters of a million young people a year uh, yeah. who are persistent absentees from school. Um, yeah. And about 60,000 of those are missing, you know, more than 50 percent of their time. And we don't we're not really even keeping accurate records on what the reasons are behind this. They're sort of labeled as school refusers or whatever, as though it's some sort of willful stubbornness. Again, yeah. putting the problem in the child Into rather them. than thinking, yeah. well, maybe this one size fits all thing <laughs> isn't such a good idea. Um, yeah. So so so. Let's say that they, so, so that parents are thinking like let's let's take my son or daughter out of school, and that's that also is something that is going to to initiate large amounts of anxiety, Absolutely. you know, yeah. because it's a such a huge move, and because you talk about a lot as well in the book about the social stigma attached with like you're considered like to be a dropout. It's like <laughs> nothing nothing good can come of that, and yeah. that it's like that that is that somehow 
just beyond the pale that you know even if even if you were miserable at school and your kids are miserable at school <laughs> it's yeah. like nobody can quite bring themselves to think the logical next step which is like maybe let's not send them to the place that makes them miserable and so there's a chapter in the book on de-schooling and you you make the point that there's very little actually being written about this process of de-schooling and just to be clear so the process of de-schooling is this sort of like transitional I think you describe it at one point there's like a decompression like going Mm. through the bends sort of thing And, and I think that you mentioned at some point that that you, you might need a month or so of time for every year that you're in the schooling system yep. to decompress. And so sometimes there's this quite a, a long drawn out period of time where where the young people might be not getting dressed, yep. not getting out of bed, not brushing their hair, you know, not wanting to go out and see people and so on. And people and again, that piles, you know, <laughs> worry, worry on to worry yep. again. So could you talk a little bit about about um, I mean, you haven't really got, gone through the de-schooling process because your kids never went to school. But but yep. um, can you talk a little about about this de-schooling process? Yeah. So I think it's a process. It is a process of decompression. And for some kids, I mean, to be realistic, most children whose parents take them out of school have had a bad time at school. That's why they take them out of school. So whenever you've come out of something where you've had a really bad time, I think there is a period of just needing to kind of reevaluate who you are, what you are, where you are, and And that often looks like a rejection of everything that school was doing. And as I said, that can go right down to not wanting to put on clothes or not brushing your hair or, you know, not wanting to get out of bed because those are all things you have to do for school. And it's almost like once the school bit of the system goes, then, then it's like, why would I do anything? What is all that about? And you have to rediscover, the child has to rediscover the, the kind of internal drive that they all had when they were younger. Because young children, you can really see that drive to go and do things and learn things and engage with the world. But reconnecting with that drive can be really hard, particularly if the child believes that they've left school because they're a failure or because now they're never going to achieve anything. So and parents do panic because generally what happens in the the de-schooling period is parents usually assume that they will continue to do schoolwork at home. So they often buy all the books, they set up a little table in the corner and they assume that at nine o'clock, a bit like that quote from Amanda Grace that you started off with, you know, nine o'clock we'll be there, we'll be doing our lessons just like we would be at school. Perhaps even more so now because after the pandemic with remote learning, it was a bit like that. You know, you had to get, log into your lessons. So they, they sort of assume that that's what they'll be doing, but perhaps with them as the role of the teacher instead. And it, the children say no really quickly generally whatever age they are they'll do they maybe they might humor their parent for a few days and then they're like no way and alan thomas writes a lot about this he writes about it he thinks it's a great scientific process that children and p- their parents go through where basically they're experimenting with what works and what doesn't work and they're finding that school doesn't work at home and part of the reason it doesn't work at home is that children have more power at home so they you know the child can go off and play on the nintendo switch or play do whatever they want to do which they just can't do at school so the parent has an unrealistic idea that we can just carry on doing the stuff at school that we would do um and i think what what the parent needs to do at that point is to just dial back their anxiety a lot because the parental anxiety at that point is going to be really high 
because but particularly with kids who've had a hard time at school, parents have usually put massive effort into keeping them in school. They have fought for them to be in school. You know, yeah. they'll have been to endless meetings and they may have moved schools several times. They will have put their whole life. They'll often have given up their jobs. Their whole life will have been devoted to how can I get school to be OK for my child because they equate school with success. You know, so the only way for my child to succeed is for them to be at school. How can I make that OK? So to make that decision of actually we're not going to do that is is really difficult. And I think de-schooling for parents is absolutely as important as de-schooling for children. And I haven't met parents who refuse to put any clothes on and don't get out of bed. But um, but <laughs> but I think there's something about you need to surround yourself with other experiences so one of the things I often say to parents is, can you find other teenagers or other children who aren't going to school or who are doing something different? Because if you just continue to be in your schooled world, so if the young person just continues to have relationships with their school friends, but now their school friends are at school and they're not, and you continue to do everything just as you always have done, you're not actually going to expand your beliefs and you need to do that. You need to surround yourself with people who say, oh, what? You mean they're not going to do GCSEs this year? So what? They could do them next year if they want, or they don't have to do them. They're, you know, you need people to give you those kind of messages because you'll be surrounded with messages that will say, oh, what? They've left school. <laughs> you know, what are you going to do? Are they doing this? Are they doing that? You're going to be surrounded with anxiety from everybody else. Yeah. So generally, grandparents, lots of anxiety from grandparents. You know, even well-meaning neighbours. Oh, gosh, they're not going to school anymore. Everybody's going to be pushing their anxiety onto you. And you need to somehow find that space of, yes, we're going to do this. And it's a positive step, not a negative one. And I think um, that seems to me to be the really big difference between outcomes for kids. That there is there is a lot of research about how dropping high school dropouts don't do well. And there's all sorts of higher risks of mental health problems and even premature death and all kinds of things for high school dropouts. Yeah. But yet, if you look at unschooled kids or you look at kids at a place like Sudbury Valley School, many of whom are actually these dropouts because they do go to school for a bit, you don't get the same outcomes. So what's the difference? And I think a lot of the difference is that it's a positive it's com community. Yeah, we're stepping into doing something different here. We're going to say, actually, this wasn't working for us. We're going to do something different rather than I've failed. I'm not doing any more. And I think it is possible for people to stay in that place of we failed uh, because it does take a bit of active work, particularly on the part of parents, to dial back the pressure and to say to their kids, we don't have to accept all the things that school said was really important. You know, we don't have to do all these things for the same time scale. What matters is what you want to do and what you enjoy doing. And I know that maybe right now you don't actually know what that what that will be, because that's one of the things that schools do to you. They lose you lose the connection between what you really like and want to do and how you spend your time, because all the time you're told the way you spend your time isn't you know you have to spend your time doing what school says you should be doing regardless of whether you want to be doing it or not like I remember as a 14 year old having to choose my GCSE options and the school saying so what are you interested in and I was like I actually don't have a clue any of these what what I'm interested in with any of these subjects because the only thing that really makes a difference is whether the teacher is interested or interesting or not there's nothing the subjects they might have you know it doesn't really matter whether they're teaching me about history or they're teaching me about German what matters is do I have that human connection with the person and then 
And I remember thinking at the time, but what does that mean? If I'm only choosing things because I like the teachers, at what point am I actually going to be thinking about what do I actually like doing? You know, what do I actually enjoy? And actually for me, I don't think I really decided, I don't think I really started to identify that until my final year of university because I actually, I actually went to university to study medicine. I did physics, chemistry, maths and English in the IB. And the reason I did them was because I thought I might want to study medicine, but also because they were difficult. And because one of the messages I got at school was, if you can do harder subjects, you should do harder subjects. So that's what I did. And I went and did medicine and I really didn't enjoy it. I really didn't chime with it at any level. Um, and it was only massive luck for me that the university I was at allowed everybody to do a third year in a different subject. So we did an intercalated year, basically one year in a different subject. And then you would go back to clinical medicine. So I did a year in psychology and it was just like my world opened up. It was like the learning. It was so different learning psychology where I was so interested in it. I was flying through the stuff. I was had loads to say to doing the medicine when it was literally chugging through. Gosh, how on earth do I remember all this neuroanatomy and this all this stuff? And how do I retain it all for long enough to get it out in the exams? Mm. It was just a completely different experience. And I was like, that's it. I'm leaving medicine. I'm going to stick with psychology. And actually, it's a little bit like leaving school when you do that, because medicine is this kind of track. Once you're on it, you know, everyone assumes you're going to be a doctor. And to leave that behind, everybody goes, what? <laughs> why would you do that? You know, why don't you just keep going and then you'll be a doctor? And then and I was like, no, I don't want to be a doctor. Actually, I'm going to go and be a, I'm going to go and do psychology instead. Um, and I just think all the time you need to be challenging your own assumptions about what it is worth learning and why you're doing something and thinking, is this really about learning and education or is this about what school tells me? I should be doing and school makes me do yes yeah yeah thank you and so so the book is called uh changing our minds and there's a there's a section in the in the chapter on de-schooling called deliberately changing your mind yeah which is really interesting and it's where you 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 draw on cognitive behavioral therapy on cbt yep. to to sort of to shed some insights onto the ways in which people's early experiences can leave them with a, a set of assumptions about things that they don't even really notice. They're underlying their sort of unconscious assumptions about things and that that, that, that that prompts them into thinking about things. And you go through this process of explaining about how you can question and challenge some of your underlying assumptions and also about the, the sort of the, the cycles of thoughts, thoughts, feelings and behaviours that can happen um, arising out of these. Um, would you be able to just sort of give a brief summary of, 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 of how this how this plays out and how it could help people to go through this process of de-schooling? Yeah. So I think what I talk about in the book is unpicking your feelings and your, your thoughts and thinking about what you learned about school when you were growing up and what you learned about achievement and success. And most of us, my hypothesis is that most of us who went to school learned that school is really important and that if you don't do well at school, you won't do well at life. And that people who don't go to school are failures. There's a whole set of school assumptions which run through pretty well everything, not just at school, but they run through books about school. And, you know, that school is a good thing, basically. That's a kind of underlying assumption that school is a good thing for everybody. And that people who don't get along at school, we have all sorts of labels we apply to them. They might be diagnostic labels, but they might also be things like stupid or lazy or not trying hard enough. 
Um, and we kind of internalize those as we grow up. So what I was encouraging people to do when thinking about de-schooling is to see if you can identify those thoughts for yourself. Because often what happens when people are de-schooling or coming out of school is they behave in reaction to these assumptions without actually elucidating them. So without bringing them out. So they might sort of feel really defensive about the child being out of school. And I know that's quite a common thing that people be don't want to talk about it because they feel really defensive about the fact their child's not at school. They feel ashamed that their child's not at school. And the reason is that they've got these assumptions that it means something bad that the child's not at school. And so I was encouraging parents to think about what is there another way of thinking about this? Like, could we could we perhaps think about if we were to believe that school is just one way to learn, there are other ways to gain education, how would I behave differently? And this is a cognitive behavioural technique, which is called acting as if. So what you do is you think about your assumption and then you say, OK, what about if my assumption was actually, you know, school is one way to learn, but there are lots of other ways. If I believe that, how might I behave differently to my child? So, for example, I might stop buying all the textbooks and laying them around in the hope that my child's going to pick up the right textbook and start reading. I might let them spend more time on a computer game that they're really enjoying because I can see they're learning things from it. So, but you do it deliberately. So rather than just hoping that things will change, you sort of say, okay, I'd, it would really be more helpful in my life if I could believe that school is just one way to learn. But I know that deep down, I don't really believe that right now. So I'm going to act as if, and I'm going to look for evidence as well. So it's another part of CBT is looking for evidence of things. So another thing I talk about is looking for evidence of learning. And I, I would encourage parents to start with that with themselves as well, because I certainly think about myself as a self-directed learner. And I can think of so many things that I've learned without being made to learn. And I really can't see why I would be psychologically very different to a child. Why with a child, we have to make them do things. But whereas with me, I don't need to be made anymore. What happened? And so I would just yeah, I asked parents, I sort of talked to parents about maybe making a list of all the things that they see themselves learning in a day, their child learning in a day, and just widening the scope so that no longer are we thinking about did they do their reading, did they do their maths? We're thinking, oh wow, they you know, they learned how to make scrambled eggs for themselves today. <laughs> or they managed to go, they went to the corner shop by themselves. But also I think the important thing is that in that de-schooling period, you need to just back off from expecting progress all the time from the child because that's part of the thing of school, that there's always meant to be moving through this process. And actually, de-schooling is about breathing out for a while, just breathing out and going, whew, that was hard, and waiting for these things, waiting for that spark to come. And it may be about things that you really don't anticipate it being about as the child starts to emerge. So like thinking about a young person I work with who suddenly became interested in cookery. They'd never really been interested in cookery before, but they were at home, they'd been at home for a while, and they suddenly said, I'd like to start making, I'd like to start cooking evening meals. OK, great, let's do it. What will we need to do? You know, we need to go and buy the things. And, a, and the, the, the bit that the parent can fall into then is sometimes the parent's like, jump on it quick, a teachable moment. And you need to really back off from that because that's the moment when you get in there and the kid goes, no, I'm not interested anymore. Don't want to do it. Because you've got back into that relationship of, you know, anything you show interest in, I'm going to make you do it. Yes. And then... I'll be disappointed if you don't follow it through. That's the other thing I think is a part of de-schooling. Children need to be able to try things out and then say, actually, 
I'm not, it's not as interesting as I thought it was. I'm not doing it anymore. Because the moment the parent gets this kind of ethos of, you know, once you're doing something, we're gonna, we've got to keep going, we've got to follow through with this, it becomes pressure. And lots of kids coming out of school, they really need a period of very low pressure because it's been very, very pressuring for them. And they need a period to recover where it's okay if they say, I'm interested in this, and then they say, actually, you know what, I'm not really. Um, there needs to be the space for that. Yes, thank you. And uh, I'm going to try some of this acting as if. So you give a few examples <laughs> in the book. Yeah. So, so for example, if you don't force children to, uh, then they won't learn. Yeah. Instead, you could you could believe if you don't force children, then they can start to learn in unexpected ways. Or if you let children choose, they will waste their time, which is something that we often hear that they that they you know how could they make good decisions because they don't know what they don't know. Yeah. Um. We need to we need to be the expert to guide them. And an alternative thing to believe is if you let children choose, they will do what is important to them. And often things that that might that that you know we might seem like make a judgment as as being you know an inconsequential or a bad decision, um, might not be when you look at it more closely. Or even if it is, they're learning about that and we're giving them the space to learn. I think that's really important that a child can make bad decisions, but I'd rather have my children making what I might think of as a questionable decision when they're age 10 and I'm right there to help them with the consequence of it than the first time they get a chance to make any real meaningful decisions is when they're 18 or 19, living away from home at university. You see? So it's about... That process of practicing making decisions, I think, is really important. Mm. And the process of being allowed to make mistakes, or be, I sometimes talk about it as being allowed to miss out on things, because often parents have got this, you know, I don't want them to miss out, or, you know, when they go, they'll, I know they'll enjoy it when we get there, you know, I just have to make them get there, and then they'll really like whatever it is, swimming lessons or something like that. And I think there's something really important about the child's ability to say, no, and even if the parent thinks, I'm sure you'd enjoy it, Actually, the child has to be the person who is ready to say, OK, I'm going to give this a go. And what I see in children who aren't made to do things is that they gradually over time become more and more willing to give it a go because they have a conviction. They believe that they will be allowed to stop if they need to, because I think for some children, the feeling that if they do say, for example, you know, I will parents convince the child will they really enjoy going to art class or something child doesn't want to go parent makes the child go and child does kind of enjoy it but after a few sessions the child's like, i don't really want to do it anymore i've had enough but the parents are always committed to it now we're going to do it yeah so the child's whole experience from that is going to be well i better make my sword next time i absolutely don't let myself be pushed into this <laughs> because i might get stuck you know i'm effectively trapped now in going to this art class which i don't want to do anymore and I think the ability to drop out is really important. <laughs> and I think that's actually something I struggle with as an adult. I find it hard to be able to say, you know what, I'm not learning anything from this anymore and I'm not enjoying it. So actually, even though I've paid the money, maybe I should stop doing it. And there's something about this kind of completism, which I think is actually for some kids is really difficult for them because it means they can't choose to do something in that because they're worried that they won't be allowed not to do it. Yes, this is something that I'm struggling with currently with my son. I, I I did that thing like like you say you sign up to this course and it's like ten weeks, and it was a it was a debating uh, thing, um because he's there's no there's no opportunities to develop debating at his school. There's no debating club. It doesn't really happen in the curriculum time, 
and it sort of we, it started during lockdown and he did a taster and he sort of liked it and so we signed up for this longer course and now like every tuesday he's like oh man do i have to do this again and i'm like well we've paid for 10 weeks you know like yeah. you know and and on, often he sort of enjoys it when he does it but there's yeah. al- there's also this initial resistance to it and so yeah this is definitely playing out in our family at the moment so you see with that i suppose i would i would name the issue in the sense of saying i've noticed that often before it you feel a bit like this and then afterwards you enjoy it i would name it like that but then i would be saying and it's up to you i mean we have we have similar things in our house i'm not it's definitely but i i do say to them it is ultimately your choice whether you do this or not but i have noticed that often just before you feel oh do i have to and then afterwards you're really happy and then i leave it and that it's up to them whether they do it or not Um, and sometimes they do and sometimes they don't i mean this this question of of opportunity cost is increasingly used or this language of opportunity cost is is increasingly used in in schools that we have you know and so much so much of the the debate around education is is now seen through the prism of disadvantage Mm -hmm. that it's all about like closing gaps and and delivering you know outcomes for young people from disadvantaged backgrounds and so on um and i mean there's, there's a number of aspects to this um so one thing would be that that you know like for example I suppose an argument against scaling up this approach and suggesting to all parents to go down this route is that, is that you know, you were saying earlier that some some young people need to be surrounded by you know reading and by model by by, by adults and other people modelling uh, behaviours that that they might want to pursue, and if young people are from from backgrounds where they're not going to be exposed to those ideas, that that it's hard to see how self-directed learning. I was just wondering to what extent is it. Is it is it um, reasonable to frame it as a sort of as a middle class concern in some sense that this is something that parents who are able to work part time and to homeschool their kids or who can afford to send them to somewhere like SMLC because these places although they although they are cheaper per yep. kid than the mainstream schools the money doesn't come from the government it used Absolutely. to come it used to yep. from from SMLC but it now comes from um, from the parents unfortunately. Um, so I mean I'm just wondering about 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 this this question of disadvantage mm. and and also how that sort of relates to the to a wider question of like what what would be your ideal situation given your your own experience as a parent having seen that actually it's okay to not send your kids to school they're fine they're happy they're thriving and you use the language of thriving quite a lot in the book um and also your work as a as a clinical psychologist and you're seeing lots of the fallout and lots of the, the distress and the problems that are caused by the schooling system if you could like in naomi world as it were like yeah. would you get rid of school like would you would you would you do you think that school is just like a, a bad idea do you think that schools can be reformed in such a way as to open up more opportunities for self-directed learning um what would be your your ideal so first i think there needs to be diversity of options I don't think there's ever going to be one size fits all. So even somewhere like SMLC, I don't think it's it's probably not the right place for everybody. I think home education isn't the right thing for everybody. It's the right thing for some people, but not for everybody. So I think we need to really widen our minds as to what we consider to be education and for it to be okay for children to learn in a whole set of different ways and at different times in their lives. 
So what works for younger children might not be the right thing for older children, for example. That's fine. I, I do think that most parents need somewhere where children go during the day so that they can work and function. And just I think that lots of children need somewhere they go during the day so that they get a break from their family and they get a chance to be different. And, that, and you know, I do think there's something very important about being in a different setting where you get to be a kind of different person who isn't just not not just being at home. I mean, but most home educating families are not just at home anyway. So that wouldn't that is I'm not saying that that the, I'm not talking about them. I mean, they're just being at home. I mean, that I think everyone needs diversity of environment, diversity of opportunity. Um, so the first thing I'd like to see was that then if school was no longer a compulsory place to be, but it was one of many options then I think we would see change immediately. I think when I was looking around schools for my son, primary schools, I, rem I remember thinking even back then how strange this is, that we're all looking around these different schools, but they're all pretty well much of a muchness. They all do the same kind of stuff. We're not seriously, no one apart from me was seriously thinking maybe they won't go to school at all. Or maybe I'll find some combination of, you know, a couple of days at forest school and some other time elsewhere. But I would really like to see it if we could just widen our view of education. I think the only way we could do that is if school was not compulsory. So if school was a choice. And I think that would immediately really change the dynamic of school if it was a choice. I mean, isn't that already the case that the that, that, that young people and in different countries, it's different. You talk about mm. this in the book, don't you? In, so, in some countries in Germany and elsewhere, like school is... Is compulsory is compulsory yeah yeah, yeah. But, but over here well, we've got this education otherwise category but we believe the weird thing is that although we have that most parents believe that school is compulsory and the government often behaves as if school is compulsory so we talk about compulsory school age rather than compulsory education age yeah. we send letters you know home educate if you're a home educators you'll get letters from your local council saying are you actually educating your children can you prove how you're educating your children which schooled parents don't get so, yes, although it's in theory not compulsory, in practice, there is no real understanding in society and there's no support for anything except school. You know, like you've just said, SMLC isn't isn't financially supported by the government. Most of the self-directed learning communities in the UK have to, uh, are really struggling to even get acknowledged by the government because they don't fit the Ofsted requirements. So there's no understanding by government or by Ofsted that education can happen in lots of different ways. And I think that really needs to change. And I think it's a we're all it's a, it's just the sort of schooled mold. You can see it happening. You know, Gavin Williamson, all of his proclamations about how to make school better is all about how we're going to make it more controlling, yeah. how we're going to make them more compliant. And that will lead to excellence. I just don't think it's true. I think the whole closing the gap thing is a total, I think it's it's tragic if we think the best thing we can do for disadvantaged kids is bring them into a highly controlled environment and control every moment of their time. Because the, the, the fact of that a disparity of homes and some homes having parents who have got more education, more books, all that kind of thing, and some parents, some families not, that doesn't go away when you put them into school. So it's what, what happens in that schooling time is really important. And I think if what we do in that time is say to children, because your parents are less rich than other parents, or because perhaps you've come from another country and your parents don't speak English, you need to be more controlled than everybody else. You need to be made to do everything earlier, more schooling, 
more, less time to play. I think that's tragic. And I also think we're losing things that we don't even know we're losing because there's a lot of research that shows the benefits of having all that extra time to play when you're younger and all the skills children learn in that time. We don't really appreciate we don't know what impact that has. And I think another hypothesis as to why lots of teenagers and young people are quite anxious and depressed can be, and that would be Peter Gray's hypothesis, that they're not getting that time to play, that we're pushing them beyond that, that the play is a fundamental part of how young people grow and develop. And we're stopping them from doing that way too early. And I think if our thing about closing the gap is that we'll do that to disadvantaged children even earlier and I actually did see that when I we lived in Tower Hamlets when my child when my son was little and we went round the schools and that was what was happening even then which was like how old is he now about five, eight years ago nine years ago they were doing more literacy in, in nursery they were pushing it more earlier because it was about closing the gap these yeah. children are coming in we need to do it earlier and I think that's deeply misguided if we think that the best way to deal with disadvantage is to push children into doing, into controlling them earlier. I think in a way, what I would like is to see that if you're disadvantaged, you need more opportunities at school, you need more freedom at school, you need more chances to experience all the things that you can't do at home. You know, you need more chances to play on computers if you haven't got computers at home. You need more chances to talk to a wide range of people if that's not something that's happening at home. You. And I would like to see the idea that the gap we need to open up is the gap of opening the world to these children. And I don't think sitting them in a row and teaching them stuff that they then have to repeat is the best way of opening up the world to them. No. Um, and I think it's also it's a long-standing myth that home-educated parents and self parents who choose self-directed learning are a kind of middle-class privileged group because it's kind of um, it's often the side of home education that you see in the press. You see children who have been really pushed, you know, going to going to Oxford at 14 or being sort of their parents have really hothoused them and done a lot more schooling stuff earlier on. Mm. But actually, if you spend any time with the home with home educators or in any of these self-directed learning communities, you'll discover that the vast majority of children who are there are there because either they haven't fitted with school and they've gone to school and it's gone really badly wrong or because their parents had already anticipated that they weren't going to fit with school. Do you see what I mean? So they're actually quite a different group of kids sometimes. Not always, I mean, So I suppose what I'm trying to say is that the, the more privileged parents generally don't make that choice as a first choice. <laughs> if they do make it, it'll be because they've tried many other things and even then they're more likely to try and send their children to a, a, a fee-paying school that has smaller classes, for example, one where they'll achieve in the parameters of the system. Because one of the things about self-directed education, which I think is hard for parents to get their heads around, and for teachers maybe even more so, is that the self-direction isn't just about what the children are doing here and now. It's about what the children want to do and what they want to achieve in their lives. So you can't define a self-directed education by saying, right, we want everybody to do five GCSEs because the moment you've done that, you've taken away the element of self-direction. You've, you've defined your outcome. And really the, to make it, to be properly self-directed, the children need to be able to define their outcome. So they need to be able to say, well, what's really important to me is becoming an expert in game design. And I think the best way for me to do that is through this. And that's how I'm going to do that. 
they need that that freedom needs to be there for it to really be self-direction whereas often if you look at all the studies when they talk about these studies that show that apparently self-directed learning doesn't work what they've done is they've tested everyone on the same outcome. They've effectively said, okay, we're all going to do a maths test at the end. We're going to have this one group where we're going to teach you how to do maths. We're going to have this other group and we're going to kind of give them a bit of space to work out how to do maths on their own. And then we'll give you all the maths test at the end. And then we'll decide that the group who were taught specifically have, have got a better education, have learned more. Of course they have, because they've learned how to do the test. So I think the thing about self-directed education is that you have to be prepared for the outcomes to be really different for different kids. And that makes it very difficult to measure, it makes it really hard to say, yes, this is successful, because what success means for each person is really different. Yeah, yeah. And, and for that reason, it's really hard to see how this this movement, like in, in the introduction, in sorry, in the foreword, Peter Gray, Peter Gray ends it by saying, uh, I subscribe to the tipping point theory of social change. At first, just a few brave pioneers take the new route, they carve the way, and then it becomes easier for the slightly next bigger wave to follow. Eventually, enough people have taken that route so that everyone knows somebody who has. At that point, it no longer seems abnormal, and then finally the floodgates open and you get this tipping point. He says, I don't know, he says, we're on that trajectory with self-directed education. He says, I'm pretty sure, I don't know when the gates will open, um, but I hope it's sometime soon. And, and, um, you know, it, it's it's it is hard to see like the the like like in practical sort of step by step terms with with my change management hat on. <laughs> how does it? How do we get from where we are with this very very you know rigid, uh, unbending system that we have, and like you say, the screws are being tightened ever ever more tightly. Uh, how do we start to increase the the amount of agency and autonomy and choice and diversity of outcomes? Um, within this very, very top-down um, sort of um, scrutiny, you know, um, accountability-obsessed system, it's really hard to see how we can take even sort of baby steps in that direction. Yes, it is. And I think, unfortunately, the, the sort of way that government is pushing it at the moment is away from that. But I think what happens, and I think this is part of what I saw in France, because the system in France, the educational system is extremely controlling. I mean, m more rigid than here in the sense that they follow the same books the same time. They do everything in the same, you know, apparently I haven't been in a conventional French school, but apparently you can leave one school on a Friday and move to another school on the Monday and they'll be on the same page in the textbooks. Yeah. So everyone's moving through at the same time. The result of that is you've got an ever growing band of children for whom this doesn't fit. And I think that's what we're seeing here. The more they tighten the screws, the more children don't fit. And I think, and then the more children are sent for diagnoses, the more children are being, you know, given EHCPs or, or fighting for EHCPs, the more children are in distress. And I think the movement, and I think that combined with the pandemic, where lots of people saw two things. One is that they saw their children didn't really want to do what they're being asked to do at school. And suddenly the parent was the person who was in charge of making the child do those things, whereas at school it would be the teacher. Um, but the other thing they saw was actually what they were being taught. And I've talked to parents who are like, you know, I was just really disappointed to see the content of the primary school curriculum. There's a particular focus on English and grammar and how they're being asked to learn all these grammatical terms that their parents have never had to use 
and have never found useful despite going through higher education, the whole fronted adverbials debate, that kind of thing. So I think there is a groundswell of parents pushing for something different. And I think the more they tighten the screws, the more that will be the case, because it just can't not be the case. The group that don't fit school will get bigger and bigger and bigger, the more rigid the school is. But I don't think, I don't know whether there are schools in the state system who are really doing something radically different in terms of self-direction and terms of choice. I feel like there were, and I know we talked before about Derry Hannam's book, and he tried to do a self-directed, he did run a self-directed democratic community in his year sevens and year eights um, in the 1970s and 80s, I think it was. So there were places that were managing that, but it's true that now it's becoming less and less easy to do that within the state system. But I do think that there's a growing consensus on the part of parents that something different needs to happen. I think part of what I was trying to do with my book is provide an alternative for those parents whose children are showing that they don't like the system and the system's response is go and get them a diagnosis or get them a, you know, get them extra help with this, extra help with that, extra help with this, but never to say, what about maybe the school system doesn't work for them? So I just, yeah, I don't know. We just have to keep tapping away at it, I think, because I think there are so many voices now saying this isn't working. There definitely it's... does seem to be a chorus starting to emerge. And I think maybe the pandemic has given people more pause for thought. Mm -hmm. And as, as we, especially the period of school closures, and we're thinking, do we really want to go back to that? Yeah. Um, and, and there's a there's a point at which you sort of say um, that, that, that there's just this serious incompatibility between the ways in which school requires children to learn and the nature of children <laughs> themselves. <Yeah. laughs> You're saying the two things simply don't add up and that self-directed education offers an alternative that works with rather than against the way that children actually are. Yeah. I mean, maybe one way in which we can start this transition, you know, is some of the work that I've been doing um, around learning to learn and having like carved out time quite a considerable chunk of time and I'm now starting to work with schools all over the world in who are doing just that who are starting to carve out chunks of time within the curriculum mm. which are you know learning to learn curricula and when we did that we found that the young people not only really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it and learned a whole lot of things that they wouldn't have usually got the, the chance to learn about themselves and the world and one another. Yeah. Um, but also their results went up <laughs> because they were yeah. learning how to learn more effectively. And so, yeah. you know, we can frame that, you know, within the within the, um, the, the, the success criteria of the existing model. You know, when we when we loosen the screws a little bit, actually, young people can learn more effectively in fewer lessons because they've had to take lessons away from subject learning to do learning to learn. Yeah. Um, and so it seems like that's maybe one way in which we could start to just, like I say, just crowbar open little windows of opportunity. And there are, there are quite small ways in which we can give young people choice mm. um, and the opportunity to express agency um, and autonomy. And I think parents can try to do that at home, too. I think that's a really important thing. I think often parents talk about, in, in the same way as I feel that as a psychologist, I get co-opted into the school system. Like my role is to diagnose children or to treat children in order to make them function in the school system. Parents can also really quickly get pulled into where they're, into a system where their whole role is to make sure the child's doing what they should be doing for school. So doing homework and, you know, and then parents start 
well, well, the parent was schooled, so they have the same assumptions, but they also assume that it's better for the child to be doing things like their maths or their schoolwork than it is for them to be doing something that they choose to do and that is unstructured. And I don't mean unstructured in the sense that I don't mean I don't necessarily mean just kind of nothing happening. I mean where the child can choose what they structure. So often parents will book their children in to do all sorts of things, you know, football and art and drama and all that sort of thing. And the child, all the child's time is spent being directed by an adult. Well, even if it's the fun things they like to do, it's still being directed by an adult. And I would like to, I think parents can start by valuing the things that their children learn, their children enjoy doing. And you can look at that just by how you talk about it. Like you mentioned this idea that they're wasting their time when they're doing something that they choose to do. And I don't think when someone's choosing to do something, I think there's always a reason why they're doing that. And it's important to to give the message that as a parent, we value our children's opportunity to make choices. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Uh, There's a lot that I have to to go away and reflect on, (laughs) I think. And thank you so much for for sharing uh, so generously of your time and for writing this this barnstorming book it's absolutely brilliant and i just like like one of the reasons that i wanted to to start this podcast was to problematize the idea of school because like i don't see that happening much anymore mm. and it was a breath of fresh air when i saw i think i came across an article that you'd written first of all in psychology today was it or the psychologist uh, the psychologist the yeah. psychologist yeah. um uh, and it, you know you sort of exploded into my into my timeline and i was like okay i really need to need to speak with this person and then and then as soon as i realized that you uh, you know you send your kids to smlc and we have uh, some things in common um you know it was it's just such a lovely thing to to meet you and to get to know your work it's a really valuable contribution and it's what's great about about this conversation i think is that it's it's because you've had a very unique perspective as somebody who went through all of this this change uh, as, a, as a young person yourself and experiencing all of these different school systems and therefore just naturally noticing the differences between them and you know questioning some of the decisions that were being made and yet being successful as a student you know like being a voracious reader and you know going on to get a PhD and becoming a psychologist and so on and then through your psychological work it seems like you have this really unique perspective where you're able to to shine a light and and, and to share ideas that that are not often enough recognized or thought about as even being acceptable in, in, in polite company um you know it's it's really interesting it makes, it makes people uncomfortable yeah i think there are ideas that make people uncomfortable definitely definitely but but you know i don't think that you need to sort of to, to do too much prodding i saw a few twitter um threads recently where somebody had asked said asked teachers what was your experience of school and it was almost like universally awful <laughs> and it's like the, the the cognitive dissonance doesn't it's quite weird, it? doesn't yeah. quite seem to be to be there yet yeah. <laughs> like yeah. but we're part of this system and we all hated it but we sort of want to like it's so common that 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 that, that you know young people who were very disruptive who were excluded or whatever you know they later want to become a part of this system that was that that served them uh, so poorly it's a fascinating thing 
Um, and, you know, we do need to pull this thing apart and examine it really closely. And that was happening, you know, 40 or 50 years ago. There was no shortage of books who were who were looking at this. And Ian Cunningham is very much from that time. You know, he's been doing this since the 60s and 70s. But now much of the debate, as we said right at the start of this conversation and before we before we came, before we started recording, so much of the debate is about, yeah, like inquiry learning versus direct instruction. Methodology. Or, you know, zero tolerance behavior versus restorative practice. But yeah. those things are still imposed. Those things are still yeah. done to young people. And there is another way of looking <laughs> at this, uh, this whole enterprise of human development and flourishing. And it doesn't have to all be about control and, and prodding and coercion um, and power. So this has been this has been fascinating. Is there anything that you would like to to say in closing or ask of our listeners if anybody's interested to hear more about this apart from reading your book obviously what would you advise to people who are interested in finding out more about this? Finding out more. Well you can follow me on Twitter. That's the place where I post things that I write and I have written a few articles for the psychologist. So if you Google my name and The Psychologist, you'll find those articles. Yeah, I'll put um, some links in the show notes as well because there's some real doozies. <laughs> yeah, but no, thank you. It's been really interesting to explore all these ideas and um, really thank you for your questions. They've been interesting and made me think about all the things I wrote about. I wrote about it a while now ago now, so it's, sort of, it's always interesting to go back and say, oh, yes. I did write all those things um, and it was such an interesting process I think and it has been such an interesting process seeing how people have reacted to the book actually because as I said you said at the beginning when I wrote it I basically thought hardly anyone would read it but I also did think it was niche of niche and of only of interest to a very small group of people and actually all sorts of people have read it and when it first came out I was nervous that they were all going to say well this has got no relevance to us you know the teachers who are reading it because I didn't really write it with teachers in mind, and maybe that's partly why why it's refreshing <laughs> that I'm you know I'm not a teacher. I'm never I've got no plans to be a teacher, and I'm just someone who's observing the education system from the outside, but also from the inside. I think maybe that's what you mean when you're saying I've got a unique perspective. That I think one of the massive privileges of being a psychologist is you get to hear about the inside of people's lives in a way that most people don't get to hear. So I've heard so many stories of people's lives and that's been so valuable for me. And then I also see my own children's educational progress from the inside as well as from the outside. And that's just been, that's, I think, where I come from, holding those all those things together. Yeah, well, it's just so welcome. And that's another thing that I'm interesting to, to, interested to note recently is that um, people are increasingly intolerant of anybody uh, sharing an opinion um, on education who isn't currently a classroom teacher yeah it's like you know you have to be in the classroom in the thick of it in order to be able to express an opinion about these things um, and there are so many reasons why that's wrong-headed <laughs> mm. um, that uh, I don't you don't really need to even list them but I think that your book is just a, a shining example of why we need to be listening to people's voices from outside of the classroom because classrooms uh, are not the answer necessarily no, they might be the answer some of the time, but they cannot be the answer all of the time. And I think that's really what I think about education. There is no one thing that is the answer to everything all the time. There has to be diversity. There you go. That's a perfect note to end on. Thank you so much, Naomi. It's been lovely to spend time with you. Thank you. Time is a measure of change. We don't
Measure of change.